committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. This week on Dish City, fried fish counters and what they mean to D.C. People love seafood, and people still crave some good soul food. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's it. That's all for me. Thanks for your time this time. Until next time, I'm Jeffrey James. So long. This is WAMU Washington. In HD at 88.5 and at WAMU.org at 7 o'clock. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and on this 4th of July weekend, we've got patriotic programs from Family Theater, On Stage, Democracy in America, yes, a radio series based on Alexis de Tocqueville's book, and the poets Langston Hughes on Treasury Star Parade, and Carl Sandburg and Earl Robinson with a pian to free speech on the Columbia Workshop. Plus Dragnet, Gunsmoke, and I don't know about fireworks, but maybe a surprise or two. Independence Day's tomorrow, so declare your freedom from the worries and cares of last week and from fretting about what might go down beginning tomorrow. We're celebrating liberty, so set your imagination free here on your Sunday Night Oasis the big broadcast. Fair warning. We're cruising toward the very last episodes of the great CBS series that chronicled the adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account for some 14 years. There are only three episodes left starring Mandel Kramer, but don't worry, we'll be visiting some earlier versions of the series as the weeks go on, including those featuring everybody's favorite, Bob Bailey. For tonight, though, let's listen to this rare one, unhappily with some less-than-great audio, The Four Seas Matter, the story broadcast on September 9th, 1962, toward the end of the series, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. This is Royal J. Hawkins, daughter, Greater Southwest Insurance in Los Angeles. Yes, Mr. Hawkins. If you fly to New York, you can catch a, a midnight jet that will arrive here at 4.20 in the morning. Oh, I can. There'll be a room for you at the Beverly Hilton Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Harkins, but I'm tied up this evening, so I'll grab a morning flight and see you about noon. No, 9 a.m. here at my office. Why? What's the big emergency? A conspiracy dollar to remit murder. Oh? Yes. All right, then. I'll see you first thing in the morning. Radio Network brings you Mandel Kramer in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
defense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Greater Southwest Insurance Company, Los Angeles office. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Four Seas matter. <laughs> Item one, and this does go on the expense account, a dime for a phone call to Betty Lewis, the one gal who really counts for yours truly. Oh, no. I'm sorry, hon, but I've told you from the time I started chasing you until you caught me, this sort of thing would happen now and then. I know, dear. Oh, until I caught you. Well, didn't you? Look, I'll call you as soon as I get back. Okay. I, uh, could drive you off the airport, I suppose. I'd love it. Now? Now. Yes, yes, yes. Now read the other item. Forty-four, San Francisco. 
Now, this show on the Sunset Strip late last night, Earl R.J. Tellinger, well-known importer, told his partner, Harvey Crutton, in front of several witnesses... There. You see? Oh. Oh, now, which was it? Tellinger in a nightclub or carding in a restaurant who threatened to kill him? Both of them, don't you see, Dollar? Both of them did. You take that kind of threat seriously? Why? Because Crutton is bad for their business. He's one of the most disliked men in the city of Los Angeles. Well, again, why? Oh, shady deals and generally bad moral character. Oh, I could name you a score of people who'd be glad to see him out of the way. Be glad to help him out on his way. How about his wife? Because he won't sell out to him before the business goes completely to pot. Wilbur Carding hates him most of all. Mm. Well, except perhaps for young Callinger. What's his beef? Well, Crutton is quite the playboy. You said he's married. Oh, he is, he is. Wait a minute, you mean that Crutton is... That he's been... Yes, Dollar, his own partner, Earl Callinger's wife. Ouch. And judging by these news stories, it's out in the open. It's public noise now. In other words, Dollar, there's a telephone call for you. Huh? Uh, Booth... Mr. Arkin, telephone call. Oh, Booth B, whoever that is. Oh, 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 yes, yes, I told my office I'd be here. Oh, uh, all right, come along, come along. Uh, do you honestly believe that one of his partners would go so far as to kill him? Yes, and that each of them would do everything possible to protect, to alibi the other. I think. Uh, excuse me, will you? Hello? Oh, my name is Hawkins. Thank you. Hello? Yes? Yes? Oh, I, I, I see. Yes, well, uh, have you notified the... I see, I see. Thank you. Now, Mr. Hunter, no, wait, 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 Dollar. That was my office. Oh, yeah? They just uh, received a call from Doris, Harvey Crutton's wife. Yes? Crutton is dead. Oh? And Dollar... That means that he was murdered. Harvey Crutton murdered. An auto accident, his wife said. The police notified her only a few moments ago. There was uh, some trouble identifying the body. Where? He drove an imported sports car, a Minerva Pacini. Mm. Expensive. It would seem, from what little the police told her, that he lost control going around one of those tight curves up there on Mulholland Drive. Dead man's curve. I see. He tore on through the guardrail and dropped some 300 feet into the canyon. Oh. Tell me, was Crutton a pretty wild driver? No, 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 no. Definitely not, in spite of owning that Minerva Pacini. That car was purely a matter of prestige for him because of its cost and exclusivity. I doubt if there are more than three of them in the whole state of California. I can believe that. In any event, they've finally done it. They've murdered him. In spite of the fact the police claim he simply lost control. I believe otherwise. That he was killed first. And he and his car were pushed into that canyon. Or that somebody sideswiped him or forced him off the road or something like that. That somehow he was murdered. You find out when it happened? Sometime after midnight, he didn't know exactly. Mm. Well, I guess I'd better get going. Yes, Dollar, get him out there immediately. Right. Uh-huh. 
opposite Pulvita Boulevard, I turned left on Mulholland Drive for the mile or so to the Crutton's dress. But I'd gone only half that distance when I came to what was obviously Dead Man's Curve. A couple of Powell cars were parked there, also an emergency truck with a powerful crane on it. After showing my credentials to a patrolman who was busy keeping traffic moving, keeping the bunkers away, I half slid and half stumbled down the treacherous side of the rocky canyon to where the sports car lay in bits and pieces. Whoop! Those fight scenes, the trailer on the climb and back the way you... I thought... Oh, this guy. Johnny! Ah. Uh, oh, Conroy. Sergeant Conroy now, Johnny. Well, congratulations. How are you, Mike? Oh, fine, Johnny. The corpse, Mike, where is it? Now, Doc Holmes was here and said it was the accident caused his death, so oh. they call what's left of him off to the morgue. An accident, hmm? Well, well, a suicide. Doc, of course, will do a post-mortem to look out for all the poison or whatever, but he found no sign of anything irregular here, and... Doc's mighty thorough. Exactly what happened, Mike. I'm trying to take that curve too fast. Just look at the way this thing is wrecked. And I'll tell you this, Johnny. Yeah? I checked with the man that did the service for him. And this car was in absolutely perfect condition. Well, even so, Mike. And I'll tell you something else, too. He must have had brakes when he left the house. I know where he lives. He couldn't have backed out of the steep driveway without him. But he didn't use them when he hit that curve. No. Or he couldn't. One more thing. Yeah? Nobody sideswiped him, but charged at him to make him swerve suddenly. You sure? Well, we're sure. Tell by the tracks, or rather lack of them. Have any idea how fast he was going, Mike, when he plowed through that guardrail? Well, Lieutenant Ashby figures by where he first hit the side of this canyon on the way down, he must have been doing close to 90. Mm. Okay, Mike. I'll grant you, Johnny. Some of these guys who own these hot rods drive much too fast when they get out of city traffic. But they lose control because of too much speed. Happens all the time. So? But you know what this looks like to me? You know what I think? What do you think, Mike? Suicide. That I doubt. From what I hear about the man, he wasn't the type. Well, now, why'd he leave us home around midnight, then? Who's that time? Doc Holmes. He has to look at... Huh? What's the matter? Okay, Gordon, lower the sling whenever you're ready, and I'll tie it under the wreck. Okay. Where's it going to be taken, Mike? Back to headquarters. The lab crew will take another look. After that, it's up to Mrs. Crutton. Seen her yet? No, not yet. Oh, quite a dish. But a strange one. Oh, why do you say that? Well, in spite of all their money, she works like a handyman. And the way she dresses, and that old jalopy she drives, and, well, you'll see. Yeah, I think I will. Why not? Okay, Gordon, lower away. The outside was all freshly painted and obviously by an expert, someone who really cared. Even the floor of the garage was painted black to hide grease marks. And the so-called jalopy parked in there? Well, it too was spotless and a real beauty. Hmm. Do you like it? Uh, what? Oh. 1938. Cleaner and runs better than the day it was born. I restored it myself. The new upholstery repainted it. Oh, work. And it runs better from the day it was born. Yeah. Come into the kitchen, will you? Uh, sure. Um, you're Mrs. Crutton? That's right, Doris Crutton. Who are you, another policeman? Uh, no, my name is Dollar, Johnny Dollar. The insurance investigator. That's right. Been hoping to meet you for years, Johnny. I'm a fan of yours. Oh, thank you, ma'am. Call me Doris, huh? If you like. Here. Take one of these wrenches and tighten up the wall bolts while I hold the second place. 
You're installing this new sink yourself? Why not? I do all the fixing around here. Why? Just like the car. It's my hobby. I have to do something to keep me busy. Hate to vegetate. Oh, do you? I get a bang out of all this do-it-yourself jazz. <laughs> uh, Mrs. Crutton. Doris. Oh, I'm Doris. Yes, Tommy. Uh, you know, for a minute I thought maybe this hard work, um, well, this sort of activity was just to keep your mind off of what's happened. But I guess I was wrong, wasn't I? I don't think I know what you mean. Well, I mean that it's rather evident you aren't terribly upset over your husband's death. Are you, Doris? No, why should I be? Johnny, it's the one thing I've been waiting for ever since I married that miserable man. <laughs> Why'd you stay married to him? Because I wanted to be sure of getting not only his money, but his insurance. A quarter million. Mm. Half a million now because of his accidental death. Anything wrong with that? Well, I don't know, Doris. Johnny, once I found out the rotter he was, treating me like dirt under his feet and out with other women all the time, I felt entitled to anything I could get. I still feel that way. Tell me, Doris, where were you when he left the house last night? You can check, Johnny. I was at a poker game with some girls I know. I got back about 1.30. Saw that his car was missing, the way it often was. So I went to bed. Then this morning, the police came and told me what happened. After they got through, I called the insurance office. Where was Harvey going, do you know? Whoever knew. Some cozy rendezvous, I guess. Johnny. Mm-hmm. Did you ever meet Earl Callender's wife, Myra? No. Why? Just wondered. But why did you come here? Do you think maybe Harvey's death wasn't an accident? Well, what do you think, Doris? Well, I have no reason to think it wasn't. Because all I know is what the police told me, and yet... Yes? Well? Johnny, it's either Wilbur Carding or Myra's husband, Earl Callender, did get to him somehow... Did manage to cause that accident. All I have to say is thanks. Thanks? Well, sorry if you like. In the end, I learned nothing of any importance except that Doris knew more than I did. So I left. Item five, a dime for a phone call to headquarters to Sergeant Mike Conroy. Oh, Johnny, Doc didn't find a thing. No drugs, alcohol, or anything in his general condition that would have made him lose control of that car. Uh-huh. Now, of course, if an ice bird or something crashed into the windshield... And he didn't apply the brakes? Mike, I'd like to look at that car. Well, sure. Good, I'll be right over. Before doing so, I dropped in at the Three C's Import Company. Earl Callinger looked anything but sad over his erstwhile partner's death. Sure, I'm glad he's gone. Sure, I'm glad. Not only because of the business, but now it'll give Myra, that's my wife, it'll give her a chance to come back to her senses again, behave like a decent wife and mother again. And you'll forgive her, Callinger? Ah, she's only a kid, Dollar, a naive kid. And if Harv had a chance to charm her with his phony manners and all his money, well, maybe it was partly my fault, because I was so tied up with his business. Just the same, you had a mighty powerful motive for wanting to kill him, didn't you? Oh, now, don't be ridiculous. Hey, wait a minute, Dollar. 
You mean that crash wasn't an accident? Where were you late last night? On a train. On the way back from San Francisco, a business trip. I got in here at 8 o'clock this morning. Can you back that up? Well, sure I can. Ask Wilbur Carding. He was with me. I was afraid of that. And three of our salesmen, too. Ask them. Ask the cops. They checked us out. Now, listen, Dollar. All right. All right. Just keep your show down. As I fully expected, Wilbur Carding gave me exactly the same story. So did the salesmen that they'd had with them. The police had checked their alibis thoroughly. They both insisted that I call headquarters to confirm the fact. So, kind of left me sitting there with egg on my face. All right now, Mr. Dollar, be honest with us. Do you really have any reason to think it might have been murder? Well, uh, Mr. Carding, I guess I thought I had. What reason? Motives. Your motives. Yours and your partner's. The only motives that seem to make any... Now, wait a minute. Hold everything. Yes? What is it, Dollar? Three C's. That's the name of our company. Yes. Three C's Import Company. Yes, I know. But there's another one. A fourth C. Excuse me. What? I'll see you later. Punch? Not by a long shot. Because of something Betty Lewis had said to me before I left Hartford. About Doris planning a trip to Europe this fall. Doris alone. I drove to headquarters and back of the place. A crew was going over what was left of the Minerva Pacini. And here, Johnny, look at the neat lineup of the tools for one of these babies. Here under the rear deck. That's exactly what I came to look at. A specially molded velvet-lined compartment for every one of them. Even the lug wrench. And all of them in the metric system instead of American standard. Wait a minute, Mike. Yeah? Uh, where's the little tool that was supposed to fit in this compartment? Well, it could be most anywhere in this mess. The brake system on a Minerva Pacini and the bleeder valve for letting air out of the brake lines. Johnny, you think maybe somebody could have opened that bleeder valve just a hair? It's a possibility, isn't it? Oh, but you can't tell by looking at this wreck. It's too far gone. I know, Mike. But if that special wrench is where I think it is. Mike, I'll see you. See what this garage will yield. All very neatly arranged. Oh, look. I suppose I might have known you'd be back, Johnny. Yes, Doris, I'm back. You want to tell me where it is? In this drawer, maybe. If you mean the tools I used to fix up my old jalopy, yes. Including this very special little wrench? Metric system? Well done. I guess you know them, don't you? For a Minerva Pacini, isn't it? To fit a bleeder valve on the brake line. You loosened it, didn't you? Just a little. By the time he got the dead man's curve, he'd lost just enough fluid in the lines to make his brakes completely useless. Why, Doris? Why you? Somebody had to do it, Johnny. I'd waited so long and nobody else would. So I had to kill him. I shouldn't have, I guess. No, Doris. You shouldn't have. Um... 
So once again, it's up to the courts. I suppose if she hadn't done it, somebody else would, like her, in the mistaken belief he could have gotten away with it. Expense account total, including mileage on the rental job and the trip home, 401.23. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is written by Jack Johnstone. Produced and directed by Fred Hendrickson. Johnny Dollar is played by Mandel Kramer. Also featured in our cast were Grace Matthews, Mercer McLeod, Frank Milano, Walter Kinsella, Vivian Smolin, Robert Dryden, Joseph Boland, Barbara Whipple, and Larry Robinson. Music supervision by Ethel Huber. Sound patterns by Walter Otto. Technical supervision by Fred Turner. Be sure to join us next week, same time, same station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, our Hannah speaker. The Four C's Matter, an episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, from the last month of that series in the fall of 1962. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Maybe the most patriotic movie of all time was Michael Curtiz's 1942 film, Yankee Doodle Dandy, a musical biopic of George M. Cohan, starring James Cagney. Nowadays, we might refer to Mr. Cohan as a singer-songwriter. Also nowadays, we might be more familiar with Mr. Curtiz's other 1942 film, a little thing called Casablanca. A couple of years later, on a wartime edition of the Armed Forces Radio Service's Command Performance, Mr. Cagney recreated a couple of his Oscar-winning performances. Here they are as they closed that broadcast with an introduction and final word by the starlet Deanna Durbin and a quick take by Jack Benny. From September 30th, 1944, it's James Cagney in an excerpt of Command Performance. are reviving Mr. Benny, this seems a good time to say that we've had an awful lot of requests to have Jimmy Cagney sing some of the songs from Yankee Doodle Dandy. How about it, James? Very glad to, Deanna, very glad to. And incidentally, I want to thank all the fellows in the ETO who treated me so wonderfully when I was visiting them recently. I really got a great bang out of it, and that's no fooling. That's me to tell you that you're doing a great job is like telling Abbott and Costello who's on first. Anyhow, with a bow to George M. Cohen, here it is. You're a grand old flag. You're a high-flying flag. And forever in peace may you wave. You're the emblem of the land I love, the home of the free and the brave. Every heart beats true under red, white, and blue, where there's never a boast or a brag. What should old acquaintance be forgot to try on that grand old flag? I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yankee Doodle do or die. A real life nephew of my Uncle Sam. Born on the 4th of July. I'm not a Yankee Doodle sweetheart. She's my Yankee Doodle joy. Now Yankee Doodle came to London just to ride the ponies. I am the Yankee Doodle boy.
our gang that kind of wraps up another bundle of whatever you want to call it. Incidentally, we'd like to hear from you. If you have any extra special people or things you'd like to hear. We got that note from you guys down at the Atterbrin Hotel in downtown Guadalcanal. <laughs> and we got some ideas for you that we're sending along. Meantime... Uh, pardon me, Deanna. I'd just like to say that if any of my fans are worried about me, I'm perfectly okay. That punching business was just a little gag. <laughs> I'd give that Cagney a Mickey Finn if I didn't think he'd enjoy it. Good night, fellas. And... And this is Deanna Durbin saying, the best of the best from the USA. Going out with yet another George M. Cohan tune, over there, it's a wartime 1944 edition of Command Performance featuring that Yankee Doodle Dandy, James Cagney. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. The names of Kathy Lewis and Elliot Lewis appear frequently on this program, Ms. Lewis was one of the most accomplished actors in radio, and she starred in a number of series and one-offs, including I Love a Mystery, The Whistler, and one of our other favorites, My Friend Irma. As for Mr. Lewis, well, he was a comic actor, a dramatic actor, a writer, a producer, and a director on such shows as Suspense, Broadway is My Beat, and a million others. Together, they were known, not incorrectly, as Mr. and Mrs. Radio, a designation belied by their divorce in 1958. By that time, Big Time Network had all but disappeared. Beginning a few years before then, though, great radio artists like the Lewises were enjoying more creative freedom than ever before. The money had gone to TV, so sponsors and networks didn't care so much about controlling the content of radio shows. That gave the Lewises a chance to star in their own series, On Stage. One of the leading radio historians, John Dunning, calls it, by some accounts, the best radio anthology ever heard. It lasted for just a year and a half, but that meant they had to do a show for the 4th of July holiday in 1953, and we're going to hear it now. It's a well-crafted historical drama from colonial American history, broadcast over CBS July 2nd, 1953. It's Kathy and Elliot Lewis in The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere from On Stage. Distinguished names in radio, appearing each week in their own theater, starring in a repertory of transcribed stories of their own and your choosing. Radio's foremost players in radio's foremost plays. Ladies and gentlemen, Elliot Lewis. Good evening. May I present my wife, Kathy? Good evening. 
This is a wonderful time of the year. It's the time for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All of which is our due because we're an independent nation. But that independence was hard won. And at this time of the year, we think it a good idea to remember how it all happened. And so we asked Richard Chandley to retell a part of it for us, and that's what we've planned for tonight. Here it is. The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. It had been warm that winter. No ice formed on the Charles River, which was strange for Boston. Cannon guarded the land entrance to the city. General Gage, our benevolent military governor, had thought the countryside might try to cross the river muskets at the ready if there'd been ice. Therefore, no freeze, and our city remained cut off. No trouble from the rabble or city hotheads who thought it tyranny to pay a king's tax on tea or anything else without having a say about it. No rabble, no. Pay and be still. We'll put troops in your city, blockade your port, and starve you until you pay. Well, a fight against injustice can be organized if you've got thinkers and doers. It was spring now, a new year, and the sap was stirring. King's own 4th Regiment men. Nothing new about them among us. Except their actions, Doctor. All the troops are stirring, and why drill so late into the evening? Getting the winter's kinks from their legs. In April? They're up to more than that. Come, we'd best get on to the meeting. Marines moved into North Square. Their Major Pitcairn has billeted only two houses from mine. He could be there to watch you. There's no evidence yet. I'd know if he was. They quartered a sergeant from the 64th with us. He doesn't seem smart enough to spy. We're all watched, Paul. Hancock, Adams, Warren, you and I. I trust you and Mrs. Revere mind your tongue. I take no chances. I don't have to, Doctor. You may be sure. There's the tavern. Should we go in together? Street's empty. I see no reason not to. Dr. Church? Hello, Joseph. Gentlemen? You're sure you weren't followed here? Of course they weren't, Sam. They're not stupid. I don't need anyone to put words into my mouth, John. That's not what I meant. Words in your mouth? Mr. Adams, I mean... Gentlemen, we're wasting time. The shorter we can make this, the better. Naturally. But what about Knox? Where's Henry? I suggest we start and get to the meat of it. Paul, about this activity among the troops... As we suspect, two more regiments were landed yesterday, making 14 regiments of infantry, plus the artillery on the common... All are being drilled hard. Then Gage plans a major move against us, you're sure? As sure as I breathe. It points to only one thing, a move in full force outside the city to seize one of our stores of powder and ammunition. Aye, but which one of the stores? Concord or Salem or Marblehead? Or all three. He's brought in enough troops for it. That's why Knox should be here. He's our ear in Gage's headquarters. At any rate, gentlemen, we agree the time is near. Now, undoubtedly, Gage will choose the same time to move against the leaders here in Boston. Most certainly, Mr. Adams and Mr. Hancock. <laughs> the infamous pair. Then I take it this is a farewell meeting. Exactly. 
Sam and I will leave for my cousin's place at Lexington tomorrow. All the important papers will go with us. But should it be done now? Why wait for the city to be closed against us? We're just tempting him. Now, there's Knox, I hope. Henry, what delayed you? Sorry. Couldn't be helped. Catch my breath. Sit down, Henry. What is it? Gage. I've just learned. He knows. No, knows what, man? What are you trying to say? All about us. The Provincial Congress. Everything we've said and done for the last six months. How? Spy. Or traitor. My informant in Gage's headquarters saw the documents. Impossible. He quoted for me. Provincial Congress minutes, Sons of Liberty meetings. All our names, how we function, they were right. Who is he? Which one? I don't know. They were just the documents. Must have been some hint. None. None at all. No, of course not. Only Gage would know his name. What can we do? We've got to change everything. No, it's too late for that. Our only change will be that John and I will leave for Lexington tonight. Henry, if they have this information, how will the British use it? So far, only Gage knows his headquarters is ready and waiting. The officers will receive their orders only at the last moment. That's all you can tell us? I give my soul to make it more. I'm sorry. Then there's nothing to do but keep on as we have. You will still write express for us, Paul? Your house is still headquarters, isn't it, Joseph? Of course. Do I say it for all? If a traitor frightens us, so would liberty. Aye, just so, Paul. But it's a deuced naked feeling, knowing there's a king's man among us. Then back to our separate jobs, gentlemen. Good luck. May God be with us. Revere? What? Is that you, Silversmith? Oh, Major Pitcairn. Rather late to be treading the town, isn't it? Your work keeps you up, I suppose. All hours, Major. To feed my family and the British mouth quartered with us, I must work at my, my trade all hours. My duty to the king. Admirable. A dutiful man. Perhaps you'd care to be of more aid to your king. I have a sword clasp that needs mending. Can you do it next week? Why not tomorrow? Or will you be needing it? <laughs> a soldier always needs his sword. It's a pity. I like you, Revere. Everything except your business. Thank you, Major. Those are my exact sentiments for you. Good night. My best regards to your wife. Thank you. I'm ready for your sword at any time. <laughs> it's a pity. Good night. Oh. Yes, Rachel. Children asleep. Hours ago, I'd kept some broth for you. I have no hunger. Our sergeant in his bed, too? Just before you came, he sat cleaning and polishing all evening. Paul, what worries you? Nothing, Rachel. Nothing more than usual. I know you. What happened at the meeting? Nothing. How could it be? A traitor. Traitor? Knox learned it tonight, too late to search him out. And just when you need your mind clear, when you've always trusted the man next to you, now there's doubt. There's no way of finding him. Stop everything and go through 30 men. Shh. Upstairs. Sergeant. It's not for myself, Rachel. Where and when the British move this time, it can mean war. 
You're still to ride express? When they call me. And if shots are fired, Gage may retaliate against... Families. You've got to shake it from your mind, Paul. Trust us to take care of ourselves. You trust in me, don't you? With all my heart, but... Say no more. Whatever happens, Rachel, know that I love you. Whatever happens, Paul, know there's long life ahead of us in a free country. Now, will you take some broth? The steadiness of Rachel was assuring, but still my sleep was bad that night. I'd said it bravely at the meeting, if a traitor frightens us. Yet my mind was filled with it. Each of 30 faces passed before my eyes and did me no good. The next day, a thing of importance took place in Boston Harbor. Joseph Warren and I stood on Gray's Wharf watched. See them, Paul? Boats of almost every transport taken up for caulking and repairs. Aye, right, Joseph. Enough for 800 men. And over there, the man of war Somerset neatly warped into the mouth of the Charles. Oh, see how her guns lie? Covering that short stretch of water over to Charlestown? What do we draw from it? One plan, anyway. Load troops at the foot of the common, ferry to Charlestown, and quick march to the nearest powder. At Concord. Charlestown's the shortest way to Concord. And the shortest to Lexington, too. Of course, that's it. Our king's man wastes no time. Grab Adams and Hancock at Lexington, then to Concord. When they finish work on the boats, that's when they'll move. And at night. Who can lend us a horse in Charlestown? John Larkin. But the Somerset, Paul. She'll be watching for just such a move. She'd give you a broadside. Can you safely get a message to Larkin? Of course. Then do it. And add this. Each night... Have him watch North Church steeple. All Charlestown can see it. Immediately, the troops take to the boats, he'll be signaled. If the Somerset stops me, he's to ride. Wait. What if the boats are only bluff and they march out the neck? Two signals. One lantern if they go by land. Two if they cross the river. A boat for you. Have you got one? Aye, and well hidden. Joshua Bentley can row me. Good. And Paul, even among us, the fewer who know the signal and how you plan to go, the better. My thoughts, too, Joseph. We'd best not meet again. I'll send for you only when the troops have moved and we're certain of the direction. And pray the guards aren't sent for us before then. That's the juiced naked feel. I have it, too. We all have, except our traitor. There'd been a moment we'd caught each other's eye. There was trust between us, and yet we were both retreated inside ourselves, as if afraid of each other and cold with a chill of suspicion. This, to me, was worse than any physical agony. I knew if anyone were true, it was Joseph. I hated myself for suspecting, yet could not help it. On Monday, word was sent of much activity among the British officers, and the sergeant quartered in my house left in full marching kit. Then Tuesday, and the whole city stirred with troops, rumors, and notions. Rachel and I said little. The waiting was just as hard on her. Look through the window. Make sure who it is. Yes. Joseph Warren, stable boy. Yes, Matthew. Matthew. A note. Oh. Is it? Now. To Joseph's first. Go quickly. God keep you. Light infantry, Paul. And grenadiers marching to the foot of the common. They go by sea. The signal? I've just dispatched it. Two lanterns. It's positive they're making for Lexington, then Concord. 
I've had three separate reports. You must get to Adams and Hancock first. What about you? As soon as you leave, I'll slip out of Boston to Cambridge. Our new headquarters will be at the Hastings house. Mind you, slip carefully. They've sentries everywhere. Uh, one more thing. I've sent another express by land across the neck. One of you must get through. One of us will, Joseph. I pray you both do. God bless you, Paul. And good luck. I looked back once over my shoulder. Joseph still stood in the door. And then he closed it. I walked the edge of the common, neither fast nor slow. Troops were still marching toward the far end, the darkness making their red coats the color of dried blood. Then I turned away, following the black streets that would lead me to the boat. Excitement tensed my body, urging me to run, but I held myself. I looked toward North Church steeple. There were no lights showing. It would only have been for an instant, but I wondered if they'd shown at all. Then I made the last turn and was at the river. I'd chosen Joshua Bentley for his skill with oars. The boat appeared from under a wharf, gliding toward me like some great dark beetle. I climbed down into the stern and pushed off. Joshua nodded to me, then put even the muscles of his face into the rowing. It was young flood tide, and Joshua bent us into it. Then the moon began feeding itself into the sky, and I made out the blacker hulk of the Somerset in the dark before us. She was 64 guns. We passed to seaward of her, but bright in the moonlight and not out of range. We were low, low beneath her, passing her broadside. I could see her guns were run out, each one an ugly, wicked fascination that I couldn't take my eyes from. I was unaware that I held my breath until I let it escape me when we had passed. The next thing I was aware of was the boat scraping on the Charlestown shore. I left Joshua with the boat and went to the home of John Larkin. Mayor? Yes? I saw the signal. Ah. Is this the mount? Yeah. Oh, boy. He's the best in my state. I'll give you a leg off. Thank you. Oh, boy. British officers came through this afternoon. What? It patrols on all the roads. Didn't you know? No. You have a good horse here. Faster than theirs. He'll take care of you. Thank you again. Come on, boy. miles to Lexington. I held the horse to a trot and very soon we knew each other. He was a good animal, alert, willing, and there was trust between us. I passed through Charlestown and into the road to Cambridge. I was grateful for the moonlight now and could see a good distance in every direction. I had the countryside to myself. Then the road began to narrow and ahead was a large overhanging tree. It seemed a likely spot... And it was. Two riders bolted out of the shadows, the moonlight glancing off red-coated uniforms. I turned sharp, raced cross-country for the Mystic Road. They swung wide to cut me off. I knew this stretch of country. There were clay pits to watch for. They didn't know. But still, they forced me from the Cambridge Road. 
I had to go the long way now. I crossed to Medford and gave the first alarm. Before I was out of town, their bell was ringing. With luck, I could be in Lexington by midnight. The regulars are out. What? Well, who are you? I, I can't see you. Paul Revere. Oh, I'll come down and let you in. Come in, come in. Where's Mr. Hancock? I've awakened him. Now tell me. They started at 10 o'clock, nearly a thousand of them. A thousand? We learned there were offices on the roads, but nothing like this. Oh, goodness, gentlemen. Can't we have some light? We've got to get dressed, John. Uh, dressed? What's that? The alarm. The whole countryside's away. The troops have marched. We've got to get dressed. What? Their aim is you and Mr. Adams, then to Concord for the stores. They know we're in Lexington? Our traitors, sir. How far away are they? They should arrive sometime near dawn. And what about the roads? Can we get to Wobach? I think so. If you hurry, I'm to go on to Concord. Well, refresh yourself first. You have a good lead on them. Come on, John. Now, just a moment, Sam. I'm tired of running from Gage. It's out in the open now. We're leaders. The people are rallied, and we should be with them. This is not a time for speeches. I'm not speeching. I mean it. You can run, Sam, but when the British arrive, I intend to face them gun in hand. John, you're a politician, not a soldier. All the papers are with us. That's our responsibility. But you don't see the point. Paul, I ask I you... I am but... not going to argue this in my nightshirt. I am getting dressed. You see it, don't you, Paul? You're a delegate to Congress, Mr. Hancock. It would seem wise to protect yourself. We are men. If there's a fight, I intend to be in it. If shots are fired, we're all in it. Our women, too. Gage wouldn't dare molest our women. I only wish I was sure of it. If you'll pardon me, I've got to get on to Concord. Hancock, stop wasting time. As I left for Concord, men were already forming on Lexington Green, a small, pitiful group to stand against the British column. But their women and children were being moved to places of safety. I tried hard not to think of Rachel locked inside Boston. On the edge of Lexington, I met William Dawes, the other express rider Joseph had sent, and we rode together. About two miles from the town, Dawes dropped behind to rouse a sleeping house. I kept on, but slowly, so he could catch up. Off to the king's name! What? You're surrounded. Don't move, you're a dead man. Dawes, run! Dawes, it's a patrol! There's another one! You men, after him! You won't catch him, not with those horses. All right, fellow. You're out late. Why? I'm visiting friends. I have many of them. Then why did you warn your companion? Why do you block the road? We're off the deserters. Come now, Captain. You think a thousand marching regulars are still a secret? All right. Then you are one of their riders. We've stopped you at any rate. Not much too late, Captain. The whole countryside is warned. From here to Concord, you're cut off. Cut, cut off? There are men looking for you. What? Where? You're behind our lines. You're the one who's caught. I don't believe you. What was that? Another warning. I should shoot you. And they'll come right down on you. I've got to report this. Get off your horse. You'll walk to your friends. He tugged my horse after him and was gone in a swallowing night. But Dawes had escaped. He was a born horseman and I was sure he'd reach Concord. I left the road and cut across the fields back to Lexington. I saw Mr. Adams and Mr. Hancock leave for Woburn. My job now was to get back to our new headquarters in Cambridge and report they were safe. It was almost dawn. I found another horse and had just turned for the Cambridge road when I saw the first British troops. The column stopped when they saw the men on the green. Their bayonets catching the first morning light. I rode out wide and around them until I could no longer...
horrible quiet. Then from behind me... It was something that could not be stopped or undone. You heard the shots yourself, Paul. Aye. They're still in my ears. Hancock and Adams are safe? They're safe until our king's man learns where they are. They're safe even then. The country's formed behind us. Gage holds only Boston. How was it in Boston when you left? Double guards everywhere. They were pounding on my front door as I went out the back. Rachel. Then they did go to our house. Paul, I know what you must feel. But we'd surely hear if they'd gone after families. How? How could you hear? The city's closed. Please, Paul, you're tired. You've been through a lot. Don't dream up tortures for yourself. Dream, I told you shots were fired. There's a war now. Gage knows who we are. We're princes of treason to him. Tell me for certain my family isn't hostage. Or your wife, Dr. Church. I can't. I've got to go see Joseph. You can't risk it, either of you. If you're caught, they'll hang you. They didn't catch me when I left. I'm going with you. All right. Maybe it's easier done with two. Go lie down, Paul. Get some rest before tonight. Wharf ahead there, Doctor. You see anyone? Looks empty enough. No, there's nothing. There. We're tied. If we see guards, move as naturally as possible. Aye. So far, it's been easier than I thought. I go north now. This street's the shortest way for me. Wait. I think we should stay together. Your house is to the south, that way. It's safer if I go along with you. One street's as safe as another. So it seems. I thought sure we'd run into guards by now. What do you mean? Yeah, down that way. You see them? Now, feel this in your side. Don't move. I pull the trigger. Dr. Church. You're... Yes, a king's man. I'm proud of it. At least General Gage will have one of you. Now walk ahead of me. Let go! Guards! Guards! And I, too, Paul. But every moment in the city is danger to you. I can't be free with you here in Boston. They won't harm us. Words about the British are willing to trade patriot families for Tories. Please go, Paul. For our sake, we'll come to you soon. Rachel, there's so much I want to say right now. So much I feel. Write it. They won't stop the post. And my answer will assure you we're well. Go now.
Dear Rachel, I have your letter before me with the news you will leave Boston in three days. Knowing you and the children will be with me soon, I feel a whole man once more. You leave confusion for more of it here in Charlestown. The air holds no fear, therefore is filled with disagreements. Our leaders are not unanimous on any subject. But this is the weather of freedom. Each has his own ideas and is not afraid to speak. This is truly the beginning of greatness, Rachel. This is what we fight for. The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, from just before Independence Day in 1953, and the series On Stage. This is the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. The writer John Meston was clearly inspired by the real-life history of Dodge City and the Old West. But his rich imagination also conjured up a supply of deeply human types in the episodes he wrote, such as this one called Scared Kid that aired a week before Christmas in 1955 on the CBS series Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. to meet Ida Stewart. All right. Ida's only been working here about a week. Uh, isn't that Gil Barden sitting with her? Yeah, uh-huh. Oh, hello, Miss Kitty. Marshal Dillon. Hello, Gil. Ida, I brought the marshal over so she could meet him. How do you do, Marshal? Pleasure, Ida. Gil's been telling me a lot about you. He's quite an admirer of yours. <laughs> well, it's good to know I got some friends. You always did right by me, Marshal. You never caused anybody any trouble, Gil. And I don't aim to. <laughs> well, 
If you'll excuse us now, I promised I'd try to bring Gil a little luck at Pharaoh. See you again, Marshal. Sure, Ida. Come on, Ida. And you'd better bring me luck, too. Uh, she sure has a way with kids. Kids? <laughs> Gil's 20, kid. <laughs> to me, that's a kid. Well, I've known kids who were men at 16. Oh, sure. But there aren't many of them. Yeah, maybe it's good to take your time growing up, huh? Oh, maybe. As long as you don't take forever. Like Henry Gant over there. He must be 40, and all he's ever learned to be is a loudmouth bully. I don't call him grown up. Well, I don't care much for Gant myself, Kitty. Look at him right now, Matt. He's trying to horn in on Gil and Ida. Yeah. That Gant's mean. It's going to be trouble, Matt. Look, he and Gil are going outside. Well, I better go throw some water on that. Well, shoot him for me, Matt. All right, everybody stay inside. Stop it, Marshal. He'll shoot him. I'll stop it, Ida. Okay, Gil. You're wearing a gun. Use it. Hold it, you men. Now, how'd he get here? I won't have any gunplay. You know that. He's going to shoot me because I call his girl a bad name, Marshal. Ain't that something? If there's any shooting, I'll do it, Gant. All right. I'll fight him barehanded. Well, you little scut. That's man. enough, Gant. Now, you leave him alone and get out of here. I'll kill you, Gant. One way or another, I'll kill you. You hear that, Marshal? He means he's going to shoot me in the back. He wouldn't dare try it no other way. I've heard all I want to hear. I told you to leave, Gant. He's a coward. He's a dirty little coward. You know what he called Ida Marshall? Forget it, Gil. And you forget about killing him, too. No, I won't. I'll get him. You want to hang for killing a man like Henry Gant? I don't care. You don't? Huh? No. Yeah, then maybe Kitty was right. Maybe you are only a kid after all. <laughs> Morning, Doc. Yeah. Oh, 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 well, well, good morning, Matt. Good morning. <laughs> You've been sleeping in that chair all night. Why oh, wasn't asleep? <laughs> oh, well, your eyes were closed. Uh, you ever hear of a man doing a little thinking? What were you thinking about, Doc? Oh, about sitting out here in the morning sun, settling my breakfast and breathing fresh air, wishing good for my friends. And evil for my enemies. <laughs> That's pretty stout thinking, Doc. Well, I was doing fine till you came along and spoiled it. Now I might as well go up to my office and back to the sordid trade I'm in. Now, what's his hurry? Who is it? Gil Varden. Maybe he's being chased by Indians. Yeah, he sure acts like it. Or maybe he's just exercising his horse. <laughs> I'll stick with the Indian theory. Doc. Yeah, oh, my. 
When I was a young man, I used to ride like that. Oh, I was fearless as an eagle. No wonder the women loved me. <laughs> you know, you better get up to your office, Doc. You don't handle this fresh air too well. Uh... Oh, you think I'm lying? I know. You never heard about the time the preacher's daughter and I were about to elope, huh? <laughs> you didn't hear that, did you? I helped carry you home the night you invented that story, Doc. Mr. Oh, Dillon! Mr. Dillon! The... Seems like everybody's in a hurry this morning. Yeah. Henry Gant's been killed, Mr. Dillon. What? A cowboy found him half a mile north of town. He was shot in the back. Gant was shot in the back. Yes, sir. Shot in the back. Must have happened last night sometime. Well, we won't have much trouble catching this killer. He just rode by here. All right, let's go, Chester. By the time Chester and I picked up a couple of rifles at the office and got saddled, Gil Varden had a good start on us. So to make sure of catching him, we each took an extra horse along. We tracked him south and rode hard till noon without even seeing him. But then we found his horse. It had sold on him and was standing head down and feet apart near a wagon. And the wagon, it was sitting there with no team to pull it. But harness strewed all over the ground. And on the seat, stony-faced and unmoving, was a gray-haired country woman. Howdy, ma'am. Uh, I'm Marshal Dillon. I'm looking for the man who was riding that horse out there. He's gone. Well, uh, what did he do? Uh, take your team? He took him. Well, ma'am, you just can't sit out here... Can't go no place without a team. Uh, there's a ranch about a mile west of here. Give that horse a little more rest and he can carry you that far. We'll rig a blanket on him for you, huh? Can't leave my man here. What? My husband. He's in the back, Marshal, under them blankets. Oh, what's the matter with him? Is he sick? He's dead. Killed dead. man who stole your team? He done it. He rode up and never said a word. A man reached in the back for his rifle and this fellow shot him. I just can't believe Gil Varden would do a thing like that. He was shaken like a leaf. He's plumb scared, Marshal. Scared of you, I guess. He's got reason to be, ma'am. Especially now. Go catch him before he hurts anybody else. I'll manage here as soon as I stop aching a little. Well, I don't like to leave you. I'll be all right. But stop him. He's done enough. Chester, bring a horse over, will you? We'll fix a rig for her. Yes, My first husband was killed by Indians, Marshal. Bad as it was, I never hated them Indians. It's different now, somehow. Yes, ma'am. I'll catch him, ma'am, I promise you. I sure do feel sorry for that poor lady, Mr. Dillon. Well, I guess Gil figures he can't hang but once, Justin. What got into him? He's the last man in the world I'd expect to run wild killing people. Uh, like she said, he's scared. Blind, crazy scared, no telling what he'll do next. My. 
Hey, look. There's a couple of buffalo out there. Yeah, I've been watching them, but they aren't buffalo. No? They're horses. Yeah, you're right. One of them just put his head up. Say, it must be that team. They're big enough. Yeah. I don't see Gil. No. Say, maybe he's laying out in the grass there waiting for us. Yeah, maybe. There's something on the ground there. Looks like a man. It is a man, and he's lying face up. He must have got thrown and knocked out, huh? I've won that team. Gil's a better rider than that. Well, something's happened to him. It isn't Gil, Chester. It's some cowboy, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. He's been shot. Well, it looks like Gil did a little horse trading, Chester. The rough way. He left this fellow the team and a bullet in the chest. That boy's really gone crazy. We'll catch him quick enough unless this man was riding an awful good horse. There's no way of telling about that. No. Well, let's get busy. We buried the stranger as best we could and then took up Gil Varden's trail again. By mid-afternoon, his tracks showed we were closing on him. Still, it was almost dusk before we saw a sod hut up ahead and a saddled horse standing in front of it. At one side was a corral holding two other horses. But Gil and whoever owned the place were nowhere in sight. We made a circle, rode up behind the hut, and dismounted. He ain't been here very long, Mr. Dillon. That horse of his is still winded. Well, I don't know whether to wait for him to come out or go in after him. It'd be a lot safer to wait, if you ask me. There might be somebody in there with him. Either way, we've got him now. Look, uh, Chester, you wait at the edge of the cabin there. If he runs out alone, take him, huh? All right, sir. We're too late. Drop your gun, Gil. No! You all right, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, come on in, Chester. Did he kill that fellow? I'll take a look. You get Gil's gun. He's still conscious. Yes, sir. Too bad. I tried to shoot him in the shoulder, but I'm afraid one bullet went a little low. His eyes is open. Gil, can you talk? You busted my chest. Here, let me open your shirt for you. Two bullets in me. You want to try it, Gil? Try what? There's a wagon outside. It'll be a rough trip, but we might get you into docks. You shoot a man, and then you try to save him. 
done it before. I asked this fellow to trade horses. But he figured I was running. And he tried to jump me. I shot him. You shot a lot of people today, Gil. I didn't want to. I didn't know what I was doing. Except running. I heard about Gant. I knew it was me you'd be after. What do you mean you heard about Gant? Uh, I'm getting dizzy. I'm going to fall. Hold me, Marshal. You're lying on the floor, Gil. I'm going to fall. Is he dead? No, he's still breathing. What was that he said about Gant? I don't know what he meant, but he sure didn't admit killing him. Let's get him back to Dodge if we can. Maybe we can find out what this is all about. You go back up to the docks, Chester. I'll wait in the office. When Gil comes to you, let me know, huh? All right, Mr. Dillon. He's an awful tough boy, ain't he? Now you had to be to survive that trip. It wore me out, and I wasn't even shot. Oh, say, if you leave the office, you'd better let me know where else you'll be. Yeah, I will, Chester. Hi, right, Kitty. Hello, Matt. Hello, Ida. Oh. What are you girls doing here? We've been waiting for you, Matt. We heard you brought Gil in this morning. Uh, yeah, he's up at Darks. How is he, Marshal? Well, he's got two bullets in him, Ida. He survived that wagon trip, but Doc can't tell much yet. What do you think? Well, he's still alive, and I've seen men pull through, shot up a lot worse than he is. Even if he does live, he'll hang, won't he? Yeah. I'm sorry, Ida. It's all my fault. Your fault? (laughs) Ida did it, Matt. Did what? (laughs) Killed Henry Gant. Ida killed... Yeah, she came and told me about it after she had left. Gant tried to run off with her, but she got his gun away from him and she killed him with it. Is this true, Ida? Are you trying to cover for Gil? Gil's going to hang anyway. It's true. That it was self-defense. Why didn't you come tell me about it? I was scared to. I I didn't think about it being self-defense. I was too scared to think. Yeah, yeah, she was, Matt. I had a terrible time calming her down. She's telling the truth, all right. Yeah, I believe her. If Gil hadn't run everything, it'd be fine. He got scared, too, Ida. Real scared. But why? He didn't do anything. Well, he'd threatened to shoot Gant when he heard about it, wasn't I? I guess he was like you. He just stopped thinking. Oh, Miss Kitty. Miss Ida. Hello, Chester. I, I didn't expect to find you here. Is Gil conscious, Chester? No, sir, he ain't. How is he? He's dead. 
He died just a couple minutes ago. Doc done all he could for him. That poor scared kid. You killed him, Marshal. Why? Why'd you have to kill him? He was only a boy. Why, that isn't fair. What chance did he have against you? You shot him down easy. Why'd you have to do it? I don't like it any better than you do, Ida. But Gil just killed three men. And I don't think they wanted to die any more than he did. City was the end of the railroad and the beginning of the frontier. And it was filled to overflowing with people from all walks of life. <laughs> Next week, during the Christmas season, two real mountain men come to Dodge to win their three-generation feud just in time for Twelfth Night. <laughs> and that was the West. Good night. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Sam Edwards, Eleanor Tannen, John Daner, and Ann Morrison. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke, the episode called Scared Kid, from December 18, 1955, and from the big broadcast, coming to you from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz, Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer, and Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org. And please visit us on Facebook, The Big Broadcast, and Instagram, Big Broadcast WAMU. Treasury Star Parade was one of those programs that aired during World War II and was a tool for selling war bonds. As a result, the show attracted top-notch talent, both behind the microphone and in front of it. Unhappily, the writers weren't always credited, so I can't tell you who wrote the dramatic presentation we're about to hear called I Am an American. We do know that Langston Hughes and Emerson Harper, who was the first musician of color to integrate the CBS studio orchestra, wrote the song Freedom Road in 1942. It was introduced at the nation's first racially integrated nightclub, New York's Cafe Society, by Mr. Hughes's friend, the singer Kenneth Spencer, and we'll hear him now in the song's broadcast premiere. Treasury Star Parade was recorded on transcription discs, so it's hard to know exactly when each episode was made, but this one is probably from 80 years ago in the summer of 1942. The host is the actor Henry Hull, the star of Tobacco Road, the smash hit of the 1930s, and still 
the second longest-running play in Broadway history. Featuring the song Freedom Road, it's I Am an American from the U.S. government syndicated series Treasury Star Parade. The Treasury Star Parade. Produced under the personal direction of William A. Baker, with David Brookman and his orchestra and chorus, Kenneth Spencer, a flock of Americans, and Henry Hall as our master of ceremonies. This is Henry Hall, ladies and gentlemen, with another of the other programs brought to you by the Treasury Department. It's the Freedom Road we're traveling today, and we're introducing a new song by Emerson Harper and Langston Hughes, sung by Kenneth Spencer with David Brookman and the Augmented Treasury Orchestra and Chorus. For the first time on the air, the Freedom Road. Travel on, boys. Abe Lincoln said, Government of the people, for the people, and by the people, shall not perish from the earth. Roosevelt said, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear. Joe Lewis said, this is God. Gonna keep me from marching down Freedom Road. Hitler may rant, Mussolini may rave. I'm going after freedom if it leads me to my grave. That's why I'm marching. Yes, I'm marching. I'm marching down Freedom Road. Hand me my gun, let the bugle blow loud. Submarines may die, die bombers, they may scream. I'm going after freedom, and I mean it ain't no dream. I'm marching, I'm marching, I'm marching down freedom. United we stand, divided we fall. Let's make this world safe for one and all. Why, I've got a message, and you know it's right. Black and white together, unite and fight. That's why I'm marching, yes, I'm marching. I'm marching down freedom road. Ain't nobody gonna stop me, ain't nobody gonna keep me. I'm marching down freedom road. China by our 
side. Mighty Russia as our friend. I'm going after freedom and a new world at the end. Times that try men's souls. Those were the words of Thomas Paine, American patriot. He spoke them over 150 years ago. America was a new idea then. The land was here, the people were here. But the idea of America, that was still just a cherished vision in a few men's minds and hearts. Freedom and liberty. <laughs> we're used to those words now. We use them casually, lightly, unmindful of what they mean, of what our right to use them cost the men who gave them to us. Those men's souls were indeed tried. They gave their genius and their strength, sometimes their lives, to assure that the men who would follow after them should live in the full realization of their prophetic vision. I am an American. The pride of all the people of a mighty nation speaks in those four words and thirteen letters, using only four consonants and three vowels, Words and letters, they are symbols. What do they mean? You, you down there in the audience, are you an American? And how I'm an American. Then come up here and tell us about it. Why, I'm as American as the soil I till. As the crops I harvest on my farm out in Iowa or Vermont, Oregon. California or Louisiana. Am I an American? Why, I'm the pulse and the beat of America. I feed her sinews and enrich her blood. My tractors go up and down the long furrows that run from end to end of the continent. I walk with seven-league boots over irrigation ditches and storage dams, over levees, and over the tiled drain swamps of Indiana. Look, friend... What do you mean, am I an American? Thank you. And you, you over there, what about you? Are you trying to kid me, brother? Because <laughs> if you are, it ain't funny, see? Sure, I'm an American. I'm as American as any other Italian, Dutch, Danish, Armenian American you ever saw. And believe me, that's some American. Why, I'm the little guy that runs the factories, drives the piles and builds the highways and the levees. I give out, see, with the super jive of industry. I know my stuff. I work faster and do more and do it better than any other ten million men like me. Any odd place you can mention. <laughs> what do you mean, brother? Am I an American? All right. You in the rear. Now, what about you, madam? Me? That's right, you. <laughs> well, that's downright funny. I don't know that anybody ever asked me that before. I always took it for granted. I'm married. I have five children. We've sent them to college. And they're in business. Except Joe and Bill, who are in the Army. Nothing very spectacular about running a house and raising five kids. But they're all good Americans. 
So I must be, I guess. Funny. I'm just a mother and a housewife. Nobody ever thought of asking me about myself. I guess they've always just taken it for granted. Of course I'm an American. Yes. And you. You to my left down there with the glasses. Yes, I'd say I was an American. For 150 years, I've done my share towards building this nation. I've worked in laboratories and machine shops. I've discovered vitamins and invented airplanes. Besides steamboats and automobiles and electric lights and other things too numerous to mention. I've built hospitals and taken care of the people's health. Established clinics and worked for social reform. Taught in the schools and colleges and passed on to the world all the accumulated learning of the ages in my small way as nearly as I could. If being an American means making America and the world a better place to live in, yes, I guess I'd say I was an American. Hmm, I'm, I'm liking this. Now, what about you? You, sir, with the gray hair and cravat and the morning coat. You don't recognize me, do you? Well, that's only natural. A lot of people don't. But I think they know who I am, all right. It's just that more often than not, my words have been buried in textbooks in the Library of Congress, in law records and decrees, essays and collections of famous orations. I wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. I added amendments one by one. I spoke over the graves of Gettysburg. And before that, I watched through the night a flag of stripes and stars fluttering in the red glare of rockets and the flash of cannon fire, and cried, Oh, say, can you see? We hold these truths to be self-evident. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude. Four score and seven years ago, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, our country tears up the These words and others imperishable through me, the voice of America... Her battle cries and hymns, her laws and statutes, words flung flaming out across the boundless sea to a world that did not know this freedom and has not learned it in 150 years. But the words are there. They have been spoken. Yes, you may say I, I am an American. Thanks. And if I left anyone out, I'm sorry. It doesn't really matter. We're all Americans anyway. And you, Sonny, what about you? Well, Mr. Hall, I'll tell you. It's like this. In school, we read about things and teacher talks. And at home, you hear things, too. And especially when there's a war, a fella gets to thinking. And when you stand up to recite the Pledge of Allegiance every morning before classes, she whiz, it means something. You know, the other day I got to figuring. There's 130 million people, and about one half of them must be kids. And that's a lot of kids, Mr. Hall, at 9 o'clock every morning, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. And they're all Americans. Boy, and how. Why, that's nearly 7 million kids. Can you hear them? Yes, I can. I can hear them.
And there's your American, your typical American. In good times, in bad times, in peace times, in war times. You can tell him by his walk, by the lift of his head, by the way he carries himself, by his good humor, his tolerance, his love of his fellow men, and his generosity. Now, to all of you within hearing of my voice, there's just one more thing I want to impress upon you. If you haven't already done so, answer your war bond protocol. That is important. It calls for at least 10% of everything you earn, 10% of your total income, invested in United States war savings bonds and stamps. Buy more if you can. For war savings bonds and stamps are your investment in the future security of America. Remember, this is your country. Keep it yours. Treasury Star Parade from 1942, part of our 4th of July observance here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We've pointed out before that the early Dragnet episodes often managed to combine the tedium of a lot of police work with unusual action and even violence. That's the case in an episode called The Big Job from April 27, 1950, NBC and Dragnet. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to Bunko Fugitive Detail. You receive information an escaped criminal is hiding out in your city. He's dangerous. He may be armed. Your job, get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday, April 27. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working a night watch out of Bunko Fugitive detail. My partner is Ben Romero. The boss is Blaine Steed, captain of Bunko Fugitive. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from communications, and it was 6.45 p.m. when I got to room 38, squad room. Hi. Hi. How about some dinner? Well, we got one to check out first. Here's the teletype. Skipper just brought it in. Thanks. From San Rafael, huh? Pick up and hold for this department, one Alfred Garvey. Wanted for suspicion, forgery, robbery. This man poses as a fingerprint expert from San Rafael Police Department. Here's his mug book from the record bureau. Mm-hmm. We're informed Garvey is registered at the Fair Deal Hotel, your city. Where's Sam? Over near First and Broadway. Yeah. Please advise us on his arrest, and officers will arrive with warrant signed Chief Police Frank Kelly, San Rafael, California. Shouldn't take long to pick him up. All right, we can eat later, I guess. Hi. Hi, Max. What are you doing around? I thought you took off on vacation. I am. Just came back to pick up some stuff in my locker. Off touch? Sure. Uh, listen, the uh, wife's got the car there. Are you guys going anywhere near North?
North Main and Daly? Yeah, but we're going to leave right now. Oh, okay, let me grab my coat. All right. You live out near Highland Park, don't you, Mike? Yeah. Mike took the kids shopping in the car this afternoon. Had to get them shoes for our vacation. Kids sure scuff up the toes in a hurry. All right, you all set? Let's go. Where are you going on your vacation? Big Bear. Going to stay the whole three weeks. The in-laws own a cabin up there. They even pay the utilities for us. It's pretty nice. Only one trouble. What's that? They're coming with us. Oh. Where'd you park? In the captain's stall. All right. I'll ride in the back. Okay. You two still working on that valley case? No, we washed it up Monday. What's this one? Teletype from San Rafael. I want some guy picked up. Here's a mugshot. Who's Richards going to work with? Where's he gone, man? I don't know. What's the crowd up ahead? Oh, yeah. Friner's convention. I forgot they were having a parade tonight. You better stay over to one side. I think we can get through all right. Watch those kids there. There we go. That's the place up ahead, isn't it? Fair deal, yeah. We gotta stop by this hotel a minute, Max. You wanna wait here? I'll come in. It's a big turnout for the parade, huh? Yeah, it's a big crowd. Fair deal hotel. Look at those rates. 35 cents a day, $2 a week. Yes, sir, can I help you? Police officers, would you look at this picture, please? All right. Maybe registered as Alfred Garvey. Garvey? Sure, came in yesterday. The picture makes him look old. Is he in now? Uh, let's see. Garvey, room 307. The key's gone. He must be in. Thank you. Yes, sir. Elevator's down there at the end of the hall. Okay. The elevator's in use. Let's take the stairs. I'll wait for you here. I want to see the parade. Okay, man. Never seen it to fail. Sam. Stairs. Every time my arch is hurt, we get a thief to check who lives upstairs. Just one more flight. Yeah. Uh, 305, 307. Doors open. Let's have a look. Come on. Yeah, it's a pretty fast checkout. Came from downstairs. The lobby, come on. Yep. Come on, hurry up. Yep. Guys, stop him! Stop that guy, police! The police! It's Max. Max. Max, are you all right? He went out the door, blue suit. It was Garvey. He shot your friend. Call an ambulance. He ran out the door, he shot your friend. Come on, Ben, call that ambulance, will you? Hey, you. Did you see a man come out of this hotel? Did you just see a man come out of this hotel? I don't know. All right, Ben, you go that way. I'll check up this way. What does that matter? Watch where you're going, huh? Did you see a man running up this way just now about my height, blue suit? Huh? No, I didn't see anybody. Did you see anybody? Hey! Hey, boy! Hey, you want a paper, mister? No, listen. Did you see a a man running by here a minute ago in a blue suit? Maybe. I didn't notice him. You want a paper? I'm sorry. Sorry, lady. Ben! Ben, over here! Did you spot him? No, we're going to need help. All right, come on. Hey, go 
man, he's bleeding. I don't know what to do. Ben, get a hold of communications. Get some help out here. Right. The guy came down in the elevator. It was Garvey who flanked right and stopped him. Garvey shot him right in the face. All right, stop yelling, huh? He was huh? terrible. Now, look, he's bleeding. You better do something. Will you shut up? Max. Max, how is it? Chest hurts. Yeah, all right. Easy, huh? Garvey came out of the elevator fast with a gun. All right, take it easy now. Joe, I got communications in blocking up the area. That's fine. Watch that front door, will you? Keep those people out of here. Yeah, yeah. Chest. I'll be here in a minute, boy. Call the wife, Eleanor. Ambulance is here. Yeah. He looks bad. He's not going to get any worse. Huh? He's dead. The name on the personnel report said John Warren Maxwell, Sergeant, Los Angeles Police Department, badge number 10377. Nearest living relative, wife, Eleanor Jean Maxwell. Dependents, John Maxwell, Jr., six years. Deborah Lee Maxwell, two years. Death in line of duty, April 27, 7.15 p.m. John Maxwell's body was removed from Georgia Street to the county morgue. At 7.45, a special detail of men from Homicide and Bunko Fugitive were on the scene to aid in the investigation of the killing. The neighborhood where the Fairdale Hotel was located was covered for a half mile around. By 9 o'clock, the parade was over and the area was cleared. We had a single lead to work with. In checking out the different taxi cab stands in the neighborhood, we found out that three separate fares had been picked up within two blocks of the hotel four minutes after the shooting. Ben and I went to the offices of the taxi cab company. The cabs in question were called in and the way bills were checked. The times of the three different trips were listed, and so was the address of each destination. We copied down the addresses and then interviewed the drivers. We're going to give each one of you half a dozen pictures. like to see if you can identify any of them as passengers you picked up tonight near the Fair Deal Hotel. All right, here you go. There you are. Four, five, six. Check them carefully, please. Here are yours right here. Take a good look at each one of them. Okay, great. Now, fellas, take your time. Look them all over real good before you make up your mind. No, no, no. Yeah, here's the one, Sergeant. No mistake. Let me see. Where'd you pick up this man? About a block from the hotel. I drove him to a place on 14th Street. Same address on the way bill. Ben? Yeah? Alfred Garvey. Ben and I, along with Ricketts and Chandler from Homicide, drove out to the 14th Street address. Another small transient hotel. The clerk on duty identified Garvey from his mugshot. He said the suspect had called at the hotel at about 7.45 that night and asked to see one of the guests, uh, Mrs. Lorraine Thomas. The clerk said he told Garvey Mrs. Thomas was out, that she hadn't been there for four days. Ricketts and Chandler went on stakeout in the lobby of the hotel, and Ben and I went up to the second floor to stake out Mrs. Thomas's room. Friday, 11.25 a.m. Lorraine Thomas returned to the hotel and was taken into custody. We took her to homicide and questioned her for more than an hour. She admitted that she was acquainted with Garvey, but that's all. One o'clock. We went to Clifton's cafeteria for lunch. Here, you take this tray. Mm, thanks. Silverware? Mm. You were the first one he ran to after the shooting. Oh, Garvey doesn't have many friends in Los Angeles. Maybe that's why he looked me up. I'll have the mixed green salad, please. Kind of worked his Garvey do, do you know? He told me he was in the Merchant Marines. Coleslaw. Some of that potato salad, please. Do you know what he does in the Merchant Marine? He told me a steward. French dressing. 
Do you know any of his friends in town? No, I don't. Rye bread. Can I have an extra butter, please? Oh, French roll. What kind do you want, Ben? Yeah, give me some of those biscuits. Uh, thank you. Does Garvey usually stay at the Fairdeal Hotel when he's in town? I don't know. That split piece suit sure looks good, and We told you that the police up north were looking for him. Yeah, I know you did. Like I told you, I've been out with him a few times. That's all I know about him. He must have introduced you to some of his friends. I'll have the prime ribs there. Rare. That piece, sir. How about it? Did you ever meet any of his friends? Yeah, one or two. No, no gravy. Meatloaf. Brown gravy. Remember any of the names of his friends? I just met him, that's all. I don't remember. Let me have a roast turkey. Go kind of heavy on that dressing, will you? Did you ever go out with any of them? No. Why do you think Garvey went to your hotel after the shooting? I don't know. Maybe he figured you'd hide him. I don't know why he should. He killed a man and headed straight for your place. Doesn't make you look too good. I can't help that. I like some of those string beans, please. Miss Thomas, you know it's going to go hard on you if you're holding back information on Garvey. I'm not. Why don't you take some of that summer squash, Joe? It's good for you. Well, I can't eat that much. When did you first meet Garvey? About three years ago, up in St. Helena. You might as well keep your nose clean. How do you mean? We're going to reach you, Miss Thomas. You might as well tell us all you know. Look, if Garvey's killing people, I don't want to have any more to do with him. We do. Now, where is he? I told you, I don't know. Squash, please. You said you had a little boy, didn't you, Miss Thomas? Do we have to talk about it now? I thought we were going to have lunch. How old's your little boy? He's seven years old. Where is he now? He's in school up in San Francisco. Isn't this line going awful slow? It's lunchtime. You know that cop that Garvey killed last night? Mashed potatoes, country gravy. Do you hear what I said? Yes, I know he killed a cop. He had a little boy, too. There's nothing I can do. No potatoes, thanks. Yeah, there's something you can do, Miss Thomas. You can tell us where Garvey is. If I knew, I'd tell you. French fries, please. You're kidding us, Miss Thomas, but we're not going to kid you. You know a lot more about this than you're telling us. Maybe I do, but I'm scared. Who are you afraid of? Look, why can't you count me out of this? I don't want any part of it. You're in all the way. The only way you're going to get out is to tell us what you know. He'll kill me. Suppose something happens to me, nobody's going to worry about my kid. You don't have to worry. He's not going to find out. Uh, no, no dessert, please. They'll both kill me. Both? Who's the other one? What's the use? Trouble no matter what you try to do. Nothing but trouble. Garvey's working with somebody, is that it? His name's Jack Fleming. Yeah. They made me promise to cover for him. Give him a place to hide out whenever the heat was on. Then you know where they are. No, I don't, and that's the truth. Why do they need a place to hide out? You said Garvey killed a cop. What about Fleming? Hey, Joe, you better move along. Oh, I'm sorry. What about Fleming? We're going to pull some jobs. All right, we can skip the dessert. Come on. I'll take a check for all of them. Let's go. What kind of jobs? Where? Hold up. Tomorrow night. Three Kings Liquor Store out in Wilshire. Let's sit down. They're both the same, Garvey and Fleming. They can't hold a gun without using it. Here's the table. You dropped your tray. I'll get you some more. Don't bother. I'm not hungry anymore. listening to Dragnet. 
Saturday, April 29th. Last rites were held for Sergeant John Maxwell, and he was buried at Holy Cross Cemetery. A guard of honor from the police department was present, along with most of the men Maxwell had worked with in Bunko fugitive detail. The chief of detectives delivered a short eulogy, and one of the men from the department band sounded taps over the grave. We got back to the office at noon, checked in at the record bureau. A photocopy room had taken negatives of Garvey's and Fleming's coming out mugs and made duplicates that were distributed to all officers. The stakeouts continued at the Fair Deal in the 14th Street Hotel where Lorraine Thomas was staying. She was put under protective custody. Ben and I, Ricketts and Chandler, went on stakeout at the Three Kings Liquor Store on Wilshire Boulevard. It was a large modern place and it did a volume business, especially on Saturday night. Ricketts and Chandler covered the store from the outside. Ben and I were stationed in the supply room at the rear of the place where we had the main counter and most of the store in full view. We set up a prearranged signal with the clerk on duty and if and when Garvey and Fleming showed up, the clerk was to accidentally knock an empty bottle off the counter. We waited until midnight. Nothing happened. It's the first customer in half an hour. It's kind of slow. Yeah. Wait a minute. Here comes another one. No sale. It's a woman. The clerk sure got the jitters. Well, I put in with him. I could go for a hamburger. What did she do? I wasn't very hungry then. Well, I got an almond bar, you want? Yeah, thanks. Wait a minute. Another customer. Yeah, man. Can't see his face too well with that hat on, can you? That's Fleming. Come on. Police officers, get your hands up. Watch it, Joe. You're hitting. He's going out the front. Come on. Ricketts and Chandler stopped him. Yeah, he's down. Watch him. Get the gun. Yeah. Yeah, here, here it is. That's Fleming, all right. Ricketts, call an ambulance. What's the score? Yeah, looks like one in the shoulder and legs, too. What about Garvey? I don't know. What do you think? Fleming stopped all the slugs. Yeah. Let's ask him. suspect was treated at Georgia Street Receiving Hospital and then booked into the prison ward at the General Hospital. At 11 a.m. the next day, we questioned him, but he refused to admit that he even knew Alfred Garvey. We re-questioned Fleming for the next three days with no results. The stakeouts continued. The search went on. There was no response to our APB. Garvey was still at large. As far as we were concerned, there was only one way to get directly to Garvey, and that was through Fleming. We called on Lorraine Thomas again and asked her that if she'd try to get some information on Fleming, try to get him to talk and to tell her where Garvey was. I'm not even sure if he knows where Garvey's hiding. He must have a good idea. Even if he has, he's not going to tell me. He wouldn't trust me that far. He'll go further with you and he will with us. He won't even give us his name. I'm afraid it's up to you, Miss Thomas. Why can't you let me out of this? Right, look, figure it this way. You knew about Fleming and Garvey. You knew they were in town. You knew what they were up to. You didn't break your back to save that dead cop's life. Garvey shot him. I did. You knew he was a killer. You knew he had a gun. What do you want me to do? Get close to Fleming. Visit him every day till he talks. But he doesn't trust me. I told you. Then get him to trust you, will you? Do favors for him. He wants to contact friends to raise money for a lawyer. Help him do that. Run errands. Do anything for him within reason. Suppose he finds out about the holdup. That I told you about it. He's got a long stretch ahead of him. He won't bother you. They'll kill me if they find out. 
They wouldn't wait a minute. They won't find out. All right. Won't be my fault. Al did the shooting. He killed the cop, let him square it up. He'll square it with the court. There's only one trouble. Yeah. Maxwell's wife and kids, how does Al square it with them? On the morning of May 8th, suspect Jack Fleming was removed from his private room and wheeled down to the x-ray lab on the pretext of treatment. While he was absent, a dictaphone was placed in his room by a sound crew from the crime lab. Fleming was then returned. That afternoon, while Ben and I listened in on earphones in the next room, Lorraine Thomas paid her first visit to Fleming. We had briefed her on how to proceed in getting a suspect to talk, in particular to reveal Garvey's hideout. It was a slow process. For the next 15 days, between the hours of 2 and 4 in the afternoon, Mrs. Thomas visited Fleming while Ben and I monitored their conversation in the adjoining room. For 15 days, despite all her shows of confidence, Fleming refused to confide. He was sullen and close-mouthed. Some afternoons, he would hardly speak to her. On the 16th day, his mood seemed to be improving. Let me fix that
Monko Fugitive, Friday. Lorraine Thomas, Sergeant. He showed me the place George did. Where? We drove past it. 1032 Alamo, apartment 3. Is Garvey there now? No. George said he's supposed to be there tomorrow in the afternoon, 5 o'clock. George said I'll have to go alone. Are they watching the place? I think so. Garvey's staying with another man. They got guns. You know where Garvey is now? George wouldn't tell me. We can't afford to tip our hand. How do we know Garvey will be there at 5 o'clock tomorrow? That's just it. We don't. May 9th, 3 p.m. An immediate stakeout was placed at the suspected hideout. A detail of 20 plainclothesmen began filtering into the neighborhood in the vicinity of 1032 Alamo Street. The three-story apartment house at that address was checked thoroughly and then covered on all sides. Apartment 3 on the first floor was checked out, too. It was registered to a Thomas King, whom the manager identified as Alfred Garvey from his mugshot. To avoid pedestrian casualties, we toured the immediate vicinity between 3 and 4.30 that afternoon, advising residents and storekeepers to clear the street and stay inside. At 4.35 p.m., the men in the detail took up their assigned positions. We waited. Hold that light, will you, Jim? Yeah. Hmm. Thanks. Awful lot of trouble for that punk Garvey. Be more trouble if he doesn't show. No such left. Hmm? Tam Coupe coming down the street behind us. Same one we tailed last night. A girl driving. There's two guys with him. Well, Garvey's one of them. They're pulling up. Ready? Now, wait a minute. All right, let's go. Police officers, hold it right there. Throw him in, Garvey. You haven't got a chance. Help! Break for the house! Help! All right, hold it, man. That's it. Both of them. Come on. Both dead. Garvey. The other guy. Rotten case. It's a rotten business. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On August 2nd, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 93, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Jack Fleming, the only survivor of the holdup gang was found guilty of several counts of armed robbery. Garvey's accomplices who aided him in hiding out were tried and convicted of being accessories. They are serving prison terms as prescribed by law. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Chief of Police W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. of Ivy is pleasant listening tomorrow on NBC. Dragnet, the episode called The Big Job from the spring of 1950 and 
from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Nearly two centuries after its publication, Alexis de Tocqueville's two-volume work, Democracy in America, is still one of the best books ever written about democracy and about America. Monsieur de Tocqueville and his companion, Gustave de Beaumont, traveled extensively in our country in 1831, and de Tocqueville's observations in particular have proved valuable and often prescient in the years since then. In 1962, NBC Radio produced a 13-part series to dramatize and discuss democracy in America. We're going to hear the third installment of that series now and find out what a typical Fourth of July was like in 1831 and what it said about America. Broadcast on January 31st, 1962, it's the episode called The Fourth of July in Albany, 1831, from the series... Democracy in America. The National Broadcasting Company, in conjunction with the Fund for Adult Education, presents Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville. Albany, July the 4th, 1831. The reading of the Declaration of Independence in the Methodist Church was really a fine spectacle. There was, in the reading of these promises of independence so well kept, in this return of an entire people toward the memories of its birth, something deeply felt and truly great. The 4th of July in Albany, 1831. A study in American independence. Item 3 in the series Democracy in America prepared by the Division of General Education of New York University under the direction of George Probst, American historian. A series designed to bring to life the America of 1831 as recorded by Alexis de Tocqueville and so to illuminate the image of democracy itself. A study in American independence. The 4th of July in Albany, 1831. What is it? What's the matter? Are they at the barricades? Quiet, Beaumont. This is not France. We are in America. It is Independence Day, 1831. And the loyal citizens of Albany seem to be saluting the dawn with a fusillade of artillery. Not a very pleasant awakening for me. The guns made me dream of the reign of terror. The reign of terror was over years before you were born, Beaumont. I know, but... My family has told me many stories of the revolution. So has mine. My own father and mother, imprisoned, barely escaped the guillotine. My grandfather, my great-grandfather, an uncle and an aunt, all guillotined. And since then we have had Napoleon, the restoration of the Bourbon, the July Revolution last year, Louis-Philippe back again with his damned umbrella. All that in 40 years. When we were living on the estate at Verneuil, there was an evening which I shall never forget. 
though I do not think I was very old. Napoleon still ruled Europe, and Waterloo was still only a village near the outskirts of Brussels. There was a family celebration. I don't know what it was, but I do remember that the chateau was full of people, most of them relatives. It was evening. The servants had been sent out, and the whole family had collected around the hearth. My mother was singing the royalist song from the opera Richard Cordillon. It made them think of the misfortunes and the suffering of His Majesty King Louis XVI at his death at the guillotine. As my mother sang, each person in that room was weeping. Not over the private misfortunes every single one of them had suffered, not even over the many relatives every single one of them had lost in the civil wars and upon the scaffold. No. They were weeping rather over the fate of this man who had died more than 15 years before. Many of those who were weeping over him had never seen him. But Beaumont, these were the ladies and gentlemen of France. And this man had been the king of France. No wonder the Count, my father, was somewhat taken aback when I proposed a visit to America to study equality. Equality he himself had closely studied already and its supposed associations with liberty and fraternity. And yet, equality in America led to no reign of terror. Evidently not. It is strange how the very same principle can lead to such widely differing results. Now, they're ringing the church bells and it cannot be six o'clock yet. <laughs> how these Americans are full of zeal. And how fortunate they are to have a fine day in Albany for their celebrations. Oh, come to the window Tocqueville and enjoy the morning. Throw away your nightcap as I have done and throw away your gloomy memories with it. Today, we are in America. And in America, the only revolution was a glorious one. So glorious, in fact, that it was not even a revolution. It was a war of independence. I stand corrected. Look at all the flags. I wonder if it's going to be hot today. I hear there will be processions today and a band. Let us get dressed quickly and go downstairs. How I long to hear that band. Come along, Tocqueville, a little more brandy. You'll never be able to stand the strain of an American celebration unless you're first 45 with an American breakfast. No, thank you. I'm not hungry. Uh... I mean, thirsty. Oh, come, 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 Tocqueville. You must bring your mind back from France. This is July the 4th, not July the 14th. Independence Day, not Bastille Day. We are about to witness the national celebration of a happy democracy. And how much of this happiness and democracy can we teach to France? Now we have a constitutional monarch with an umbrella. Now we have the beginnings of a democracy. Will that make us a happy and contented people, Beaumont? I don't know. What little I've seen of it among the Americans makes me think it certainly suits them. Whether it suits us, well, that is something else again. It depends what we do with it. You may be right. Well, I shall keep an open mind. <clears throat> Pass the cold beef. 
Morning, gentlemen. Early breakfast, that's the thing. Mr. Flagg. What a pleasant surprise. <laughs> Nothing like a good breakfast to start a good day. Mr. Tocqueville, Mr. Beaumont, meet the Lieutenant Governor of the State of New York, Edward P. Livingston. Delighted to make the acquaintance of the countrymen of Lafayette. Oh, of course. Delighted, sir, to make your acquaintance. You must forgive our early intrusion, but Mr. Flagg felt, and I agree, that you must be spoken to at once before you'd made other arrangements. Spoken to, sir? Well, we're very anxious that you gentlemen will march with us and with various other dignitaries at the head of the procession. Mr. Flagg felt, and I agree, that it would be most fitting. And a friendship between the nations, a very fine thing. I agree. So, we should be most honored, but will not such a thing sadly disturb your table of... Precedence? Table of precedence? <laughs> not here. Not over here. Plague takes such a thing. The nearest we get to a table of precedence is that meeting we had last night in your house, Ned. I agree. And you know, we just sat down with half a dozen of the leading citizens and thrashed it all out. Uh, where the wagons were to go, where the 4th of July orator was to march. I hope you're ready for some long speeches. And that just about settled it. Uh, wait a minute. I forgot the militia. You're right. We'd better get along and see that they're going to turn out on time. Uh, uh, militia? What is that? Uh, to maintain order? Maintain order? <laughs> what for? It's just for show. The militia's the National Guard. <laughs> oh. <laughs> You're aware the Constitution gives every man the right to bear arms. Citizen army. That's the militia. Citizen army. Do you not have an army in France? Oh, indeed, yes. Uh, we have an army and an armed police force. Uh, several police forces. But we have no such thing as a citizen army. There have been occasions when the army has ruthlessly suppressed the citizens. Uh, happily in the past. In the past, yes. Come, Beaumont. You must excuse us, gentlemen. This Independence Day of yours is awakening in my breast feelings of patriotism and remorse. No doubt I shall feel better when the actual ceremonies begin. Now then, uh, where's the lieutenant governor? Here I am, Azariah. Oh, good for you. Now, uh, we shall be in front, the lieutenant governor and you gentlemen and I, and the chancellor and the controller and all those people. Then we shall have the uh, fire department. All of them? All nine companies. So what if there's a fire? No American house dare burn on the 4th of July. <laughs> fire department has a new banner and a miniature engine. Very fine. Then the uh, sons of St. Andrews. Uh, there they are, over there. Uh, what time do you have now? Mm, five and twenty of ten. Now, what time does the procession start? Ten o'clock sharp, Mr. Beaumont, with any luck. And if they can get all the wagons and floats ready in time. Uh, look, uh, step over this way, gentlemen, and take a look at the uh, printer float. We should be very glad to. Come, Beaumont. Now, uh, here, gentlemen. Look. Look at all this. How splendid. How superb. Uh, but what does it all mean? It means? Uh, well, I, I know what uh, some of it means, but the master printers can tell you what it all means. Hey, uh, here now. Here's your chance. Distinguished visitors from France come to see America. Tell them what all this means. Well, this, like, is the wagon of the Association of Printers in Albany Typographical Society. At the front end, we got a gilt bust of Benjamin Franklin. 
I guess you should know him all right. He spent a great deal of time in France. But while recognizing that Franklin was a great man, why do you choose to carry his bust on the printer's wagon? Because he was a printer himself, that's why. In this country, men can rise to greatness and still be proud of their old trades. Now, in the center of the wagon, you'll observe we have a flagstaff set up and the flags of various nations. The U.S. colors, of course. And those are France. And Belgium. And uh, what is that other one? Well, that will be the flag of Poland, sir. Gallant country, very brave. Keen interest here in Polish independence. That's the truth. There's a keen interest here in countries that are, like, well, fond of liberty themselves. Or fighting for liberty. Or anything of that kind. No call for you to fret, gentlemen. Your flag's there. France has overthrown her tyrants. Has she? I do not think that the American Revolution and the French Revolution are truly comparable. Oh, I, uh, I want you to come with me this way. See, this way. Oh, but I, I want to make some notes. Oh, this will give you something worth noting, Mr. Tocqueville. Now, look, near the, uh, the head of the procession, we have a carriage with the veterans of the War of Independence. There are very few left now. After all, it's 55 years ago. But there's one old fellow that's very spry, very spry, considering he's very well preserved. He's the man you should see before the procession starts. He'll be too tired when it ends and may have drunk a great many toasts into the bargain, if you take my meaning. Old soldiers, you know, military reunions. Let's catch him now. Mr. Flagg hurried us past the other groups that were forming for the parade. The Mechanics Benefit Society, the Painters Association, the Apprentices Society. And I could not help reflecting, as we walked along, how unlike France this country has become. The American Revolution produced a Washington, not a Napoleon. It had no reign of terror, and General Washington was followed not by counter-revolutions and plots within plots, but by an orderly succession of constitutional presidents. Then we reached the place where an old gentleman was sunning himself beside his carriage, waiting for the procession to start. And these gentlemen are from France to study whatever we have to offer. It is an honor, sir, to meet a survivor of the armies of the American Revolution. No such thing. I beg your pardon? No such thing. It wasn't a revolution. That's what the British called it. We called it by its right name, the War of Independence. I stand corrected. And only this morning I corrected my friend, Mr. Beaumont, for the same error. Uh, did you see General Washington? I surely did. I was a drummer boy in the retreat across New Jersey. Uh, that was a cold campaign, that was. December. We all thought the game was about up then. Later on, we heard the general about thought so, too. I was writing dismal letters to his friend about it. Uh, you heard of Tom Paine? Tom Paine? The infidel? Well, I don't know whether he was an infidel. I never got to ask him. I know he was all for an independent America. And I know General Washington thought a lot of him. Of course, he was a friend of his, Right in the middle of that New Jersey campaign, when we was all cold and sick and miserable, the general paraded us by regiments. Well, 
We hoped we were going to get an issue of brandy or rations or powder or something we could have used. But what we got was something written by this Tom Paine read out to us. A very famous passage. Uh, these are the times that try men's souls. We knew that without some scribbler telling us so. Well, no doubt he was uh, trying to put heart into you. Uh, uh, you have heard of our great general, Napoleon. He was always addressing his troops to put heart into them. <laughs> and he got beaten in the end, though, didn't he? Well, he, he did. But he knew that the armies did not run on speeches. An army, he once said, marches on its stomach. Well, the general knew that, too. He was the greatest man the world has ever produced. And he served only two terms as president. And then he went home to Mount Vernon and lived as a private gentleman. There they go with some more of those confounded firecrackers. I hate the things. I'd rather be back in a retreat across New Jersey than to listen to those infernal contraptions. Every 4th of July, this place is like a town under siege. One damn fool after another. Firing off muskets from the front door, pistols from the window. Rockets come whizzing into your bedroom and... Blazing grasshoppers jump at you on the sidewalk. I'm scared to death. The horses are going to bolt and all us veterans will be killed at one go. When we fit the war, we never reckoned that for the rest of our lives, every living soul from the senator to the chimney sweeper to let off his patriotism in gunpowder. Yes, well, Ed, it's uh, five minutes of ten. Time to be moving along, gentlemen. Uh, you'll be walking near the head of the procession with the lieutenant governor and myself. Do just one thing before we go. Look at that. An old flag, torn and scarred. Uh, those holes were made by bullets. Uh, uh, some of them certainly were. That's a flag that's come down from the War of Independence. You have no idea, gentlemen, what it's like to overthrow a tyranny. I could have told him that in France we had had too much experience of overthrowing tyrannies. But why should I worry him with the dark thoughts that preyed upon my mind? In America, these old soldiers who fought with Washington are themselves looked on as precious relics and whom all the citizens delight to honor. And at 10 o'clock sharp, a band struck up and the procession moved away with Beaumont and myself marching proudly near the head. Here we are, Tocqueville, marching in the 4th of July parade in Albany. We, uh, we swing around here under North Pearl Street. Now look behind you in a moment. Uh, gentlemen marching behind. Oh, oh yes. Uh, the preoccupied-looking gentleman. Yeah, that's the one. Mr. John B. Van Shake, leading lawyer in town. He's the, uh, Independence Day orator. I believe he has some telling remarks prepared on the independence of the Poles and also uh, on this little revolution of yours last July. Last July? Oh, yes, the July Revolution. The July Revolution. Do you remember, Beaumont, our talk after last July?
We are resolved then, Beaumont. Absolutely resolved. I've already explained to my father that my position as a magistrate of France has been rendered intolerable by the July Revolution. To say nothing of their testing our loyalty by making us take the oath of allegiance twice. That was nothing but a deliberate insult. It certainly didn't make us any more loyal. My friends are sufficiently outraged by having taken the oath once. Brother's hand is set against brother. Our position in France has become intolerable. This trip to America will form a sort of voluntary exile. To study the American prisons. Well, that is a legitimate occupation for a pair of young magistrates. I think we have more to learn from America than information about prisons. What? The principle of equality. It may be that in America we can get a glimpse of the destiny of France. <laughs> The, uh, the exercises will begin with a prayer from one of the Protestant ministers. I notice that they begin everything with a prayer. Probably things don't go any the worse for it. Let us pray. Almighty God, the fountainhead and origin of human liberties here on earth, the foundation and the buttress of all just governments, we humbly thank thee for having preserved our nation for yet another year. We pray further that the liberties and freedoms so dearly won by our forefathers will be maintained under thy guidance and extended to thy glory, not only within our own nation, but to the other nations of the earth. And especially we pray at this time for the people of Poland. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Amen. Judge Waterton will commence the exercises by reading the Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to of all the events rights, which occurred, I was most impressed, first, with the honor and respect accorded to the veterans of the war, and secondly, with the reading of the Declaration of Independence itself, which was done with warmth and dignity. It was really a fine spectacle. A profound silence reigned in the meeting. When, in its eloquent plea, Congress reviewed the injustices and the tyranny of England, we heard a murmur of indignation and anger circulate about us in the auditorium. When it appealed to the justice of its cause and expressed the generous resolution to succumb or free America, it seemed that... Electric current made the hearts vibrate. This was not, I assure you, a theatrical performance. 
There was, in the reading of these promises of independence, so well kept, in this return of an entire people toward the memories of its birth, in this union of the present generation to that which is no longer, sharing for the moment all its generous passions, there was, in all that, something deeply felt and truly great. And a right ought to be free and independent states that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Amen. Fellow citizens of Albany, the 4th of July oration will now be delivered by our silver-tongued 4th of July orator. Mr. John B. Van Shake of this city. Hello, Americans. Consider, first of all, ancient Egypt. Oh, my fellow Americans, how readily does ancient Egypt spring to the tongues, the hearts, and the eyes of every one of us here today. In this very they should have place, stopped with the reading of that noble declaration, but no. No sooner was it concluded than a lawyer stepped up to make us a long rhetorical harangue in which he pompously passed the entire universe in review to get to the United States, which in all respects he made the center of the world. This had all the appearance of a farce. Though, of course, we see such things in France at the funerals of our great men. I came out cursing the orator whose flow of words and stupid national pride had succeeded in destroying a part of the profound impression that the rest of the spectacle had made on me. But before we left, the proceedings ended with an ode called The Progress of Liberty, set to the tune of our Marseillaise, and accompanied by an orchestra which consisted, I assure you on my word of honor, of nothing whatever but one single flute. What did you make of our day? For me, a day of contrasts. I saw and heard America, but I thought of France. It was a strange irony that these two lines of thought should have intersected at last in that peculiar ode to American liberty that they sang to the tune of the Marseillaise. And think of all those toasts, the symbolic 13 toasts to Washington, to Lafayette. And the 13th, the fair sex, <laughs> always entitled to our protection. So far, so good. But surely the voluntary toasts were the most peculiar. 
when the most directly opposed political sentiments were solemnly proposed in perfect and rapid succession. That was simply because, on Independence Day, all shades of political opinion unite in praising the Union. Mm. Well, there is more brilliance in our ceremonies. But in those of the United States, there is more truth. I am still trying to compose my thoughts after the stimulation I have received from the sacred day of the nation of equality. What are we to make of it all? The nations of our time cannot prevent the conditions of men from becoming equal, but it depends upon themselves whether the principle of equality is to lead them to servitude or freedom, to knowledge or barbarism, to prosperity or wretchedness. You have just heard The Fourth of July in Albany, 1831, A Study in American Independence, Item 3, in a series based on Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. This series, presented by the National Broadcasting Company, was prepared by the Division of General Education of New York University under the direction of George Probst, American historian. Produced in the studios of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation by Andrew Allen. Script by Lister Sinclair. Music by Lucio Agostini. This series, Democracy in America, is made possible by a grant from the Fund for Adult Education as part of a general course of study of the nature of American society. For information about the use of these de Tocqueville dramatizations for study or discussion, and how to secure these new materials about American democracy at a reasonable charge, write to the American Foundation for Continuing Education, Post Office Box 749, Chicago 90, Illinois. Now this is Ben Grower inviting you to join us next week for Item 4, The Arc of Civilization on Democracy in America. The 4th of July in Albany, 1831, part of Democracy in America, the series based on Alexis de Tocqueville's classic work broadcast in the winter of 1962. It came to you from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Among the most important of de Tocqueville's observations were those concerning religion in America. He saw religion as essential to a functioning democracy and found that it flourished here precisely because it was separate from the government. We're about to hear a show that might be regarded as evidence for his argument. It's a patriotic historical drama that comes from a determinedly religious program, Family Theater, the series that always reminded its listeners, the family that prays together stays together. Narrated by Loretta Young and starring Robert Stack and Gene Lockhart, it's a play called The Longest Hour, from July 1st, 1953, The Mutual Network and Family Theater. Family Theater presents Loretta Young, Robert Stack, and Gene Lockhart. From 
Hollywood, the Mutual Network, in cooperation with Family Theater, presents The Longest Hour, starring Robert Stack and Gene Lockhart. To introduce the drama, here is your hostess, Loretta Young. Thank you. Thank you, Tony Lafrano. A family theater's only purpose is to bring to everyone's attention a practice that must become an important part of our lives if we are to win peace for ourselves, peace for our families, and peace for the world. Family theater urges you to pray. Pray together as a family. And now, to our transcribed drama, The Longest Hour, starring Gene Lockhart as Adam and Robert Stack as Jefferson. It is the night of July 1st, 1776. In a small, stuffy anteroom of the Pennsylvania State House at Philadelphia, five weary men working by candlelight are gathered about a writing desk littered with crumpled sheets of paper. They're tired. Their nerves are on edge. Their patience at the breaking point. Gentlemen, let's be realistic about this. We are failing in our task. Come now, Adams. We are having difficulties, to be sure, but they are not insuperable. Mr. Franklin, I, I admire your skill as a diplomat, but this is a time for brutal truth, not diplomacy. And what is the brutal truth, Mr. Adams? That this committee, which was formed to draft a declaration of independence, is not capable of doing so. I declared from the beginning, Jefferson, that such a document, if it's to be written at all, must be the product of a single intelligence. And now I'm being proved right. I find small satisfaction in you being right, Mr. Adams. Right or wrong, we must have a declaration ready when the convention continues in the morning. And more than that, Sherman, it must be one upon which we five will stand or fall. You've been hopping on that ever since the committee convened, Livingston. Don't you think it can be done? Frankly, I don't. We five were not chosen by accident. Our backgrounds differ as well as our You views. needn't keep reminding me that you are an aristocrat. Now, now, Roger. And you, Sherman, needn't take the position that a man must have grime under his nails to be a patriot. Gentlemen, gentlemen, this is a poor moment for bickering. Call it bickering if you will, Mr. Franklin. The fact stands. No two of this committee are in agreement. Much less all five. John, whatever purpose lay behind the choice of committee members... It remains that if the declaration is longer delayed, the convention will never adopt it. This is the hour, the last hour. Well, then, what has been done? You, Mr. Jefferson, for a man so popular with the crowd, you've lapsed into an unseemly silence. I've been trying on paper to frame a beginning to this, Mr. Adams. The actual language of the declaration. Well, well. It's just a start. But how does this sound? When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for a people to advance from that subordination in which they have hitherto remained... Now, it's too windy, Jefferson. The opening's all right, but after that you're no, going no, to... No, no, the last part sounds negative, Tom, as if we're apologizing. And I don't care for the word subordination. Uh, read it again, Tom. Slowly. When in the course of human events... It becomes necessary for a people to advance from that... the word I balk at. Advance. It's... And it's not strong enough. I think that's where it goes off. We're doing more than advancing. We're cutting ourselves off from the crown. All right. 
Instead of advance, let's try sever. That's better. Oh, uh, Tom? Yes, Mr. Franklin. Sever is undoubtedly the word to describe the precise action that we're taking, but I think for our part the language should indicate a more natural progression to freedom, something that's our due. Mm. How about dissolve? Dissolve? Much better. Try going on from there. In the course of human events, it becomes necessary for a people to dissolve the... The bands which have connected them with another. Uh, uh, try making a people, one people. For mm -hmm. one people to dissolve the bands which have connected them with another. No, 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 no. It still sounds Just negative. a minute, Roger. No, just a no, minute. All right. How's this? Which have connected them with another. And to assume among the powers of the earth the equal and independent station. Yeah, now, that phrase. Please, right Mr. There. Adams. Station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. Better. Better it tells what we're after. I don't like equal and independent. The language is misleading. Mr. Adams, if we haggle over every word, this will never be finished. You haggled on a point of grammar a moment ago, Sherman. The phrase, equal and independent, I say, is misleading. Is it the word equal which disturbs you, Mr. Adams? It is not. Retain equal, Mr. Jefferson, but change independent to separate. We are proclaiming our independence, are we not? Precisely. And the proclamation is implicit in the document. I want to make clear that the individual sovereignty of each colony is assured. Good heavens, Mr. Adams, are we to fight the British colony by colony, or are we forming a union? A union. A union of sovereign states, yes. Uh, Mr. Adams, I feel the word independent should appear prominently in the Declaration. I've no wish that it shall not, Livingston. But I can promise you that unless the separate character of each colony is guaranteed in writing, Massachusetts will not be signatory to this agreement. Uh, Tom, since it is our intention to guarantee such sovereignty to the colonies... Might this not be an appropriate place to say so? But Mr. Franklin, the don't... The question, after all, is something we can settle amongst ourselves. Our ringing declaration of our freedom is what we wish to have sound loudest in the ears of King George. Very well, Mr. Franklin. To assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. And so it went, phrase after phrase, word after word. The candles burnt low and fluttered out. And one or another of the five men in the anteroom replaced them and continued to pace the floor, wrestling with the language of a document that none of them dared hope had any claim to permanence, much less to immortality. John Adams, stiff and brusque in his too warm velvet and watered silk, Franklin, bald and aging, peering over the rimless spectacles he invented. Livingston, the impeccable aristocrat. Sherman, the zealot in homespun. And Thomas Jefferson, lean and ungainly, bent over the table, scratching out the alphabet of freedom with a quill pen. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind <coughs> requires that they should... They should declare the causes 
which impel them to the chain. Now, there again, Jefferson. I believe the word should be separation. Mr. Adams, what is this fatal fascination that things separate have for you? It is not a matter of fascination, but of construction. Every word, haggle, haggle. There's no will to finish this time. I don't know, but I prefer separation in this case. At the risk of appearing undiplomatic, I'll stand with Jefferson. Change. We are making a change. It conveys the sense of what we are doing. I say there's no will to finish this. Every word, every comma haggling. Come in. Gentlemen. What is it, Mr. Morris? I think you should know that some of the convention members are caucusing unofficially. What? Caucusing? For what purpose? There is talk of adjourning the convention permanently. Adjourning the convention? I say to you, it's criminal nonsense to think of adjournment now. Nevertheless, Mr. Adams, it's in the wind. Some say the British power is too great for us. That we can never expect any real help from France. We've been fighting the British for the past 14 months. If their power is so great, why haven't they crushed us? I'm only repeating the rumors, Mr. Jefferson. Gentlemen, we must at least use up the time left to us. If at the end of the hour, we are not united in support of a document that can be taken before the convention with faith and fire, then I too will admit, the effort is hopeless. It was a fight now against time and faint-heartedness, against the mutterings of sunshine patriots and men of little faith. As the minutes went by, Jefferson scratched furiously at the document before him, the other members nodding as they read over his shoulder, now and then offering a suggestion or making a comment. Almost unnoticed, a gray light crept slowly into the room as the dawn quietly, gradually pushed back the shades of night. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. Uh, Tom, I suggest we change sacred and undeniable to self-evident. Mm, self-evident. I see little difference or improvement in the change, Mr. Franklin. It's a tactical point, John. If we say self-evident, we put the convention in the position of not being sure what to attack. I'll accept that. Mr. Adams? Um, very well. Anyway, hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created free and equal. No, not created. Born. Born free and equal. On the contrary, Mr. Adams, we are created in our equality given by that act of creation. If men are merely born, they have no one to pray to. But if they are created, then it is by a divine agency, by God. And to him they may turn in time of trouble or to give thanks... Ah, very well. Very well, Mr. Jefferson. Continue. That all men are created free and equal. And that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit, the pursuit of happiness. We'll never finish this on time. Gentlemen, gentlemen, we're almost finished. Now let's try to hold on to our tempers a little longer. Well, Mr. Adams, such as it is, it's finished. Yes. And 
Not a bad document, Jefferson. Not bad at all. Now, if we can get it through the convention... We'll never know until we try, Mr. Livingston. So, shall we enter the arena, gentlemen? What's your opinion, Mr. Franklin? Well, at least they sat quietly while it was being read to them. I think we can expect some trouble before the voting. The aristocrats don't like it. I'm an aristocrat, Sherman, and I helped write it. Mr. Chairman! Mr. Chairman! Starting starting the faint hearts, I knew it. The chair recognizes General Schuyler of New York. Mr. Chairman, as a representative of my sovereign state, I cannot vote on a matter of such debatable import without months to consider. The chair recognizes Mr. Jefferson of Virginia. Mr. Chairman, we are a year and two months from Lexington and Concord. All that time Americans have been fighting and dying for independence, and the whole world knows it. And still we have not, as a people, declared our independence to the world. There are no more months left us in which to consider the matter. We must act now or never. Hey! 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 Mr. Chairman! Mr. Chairman! The chair recognizes Mr. Franklin from Pennsylvania. Mr. Chairman, it is not the purpose of this committee to force upon an unwilling convention a document which does not, in every particular, reflect the combined sentiment of this body. Compromise is of the essence of true self-government, and we are all willing to compromise, but not upon principle. And it is the principle of independence which is here at stake. Gentlemen, the hour is late. We had better agree we will all hang together, or we are mortally bound to be hanged separately. Mr. Lee of Virginia. Mr. Chairman, I move that the convention assemble adopt the following resolution, that these United Colonies are right and ought to be free and independent states. We're in for a fight, Mr. Franklin. I'm not so sure. There may be a way around this. Let's press for a vote. Mr. Lee's resolution constitutes the heart of the declaration. But Livingston, they aren't ready to accept the draft declaration as a stand. Exactly. I think what Mr. Livingston means is that if we can force a vote on the Lee resolution and the convention accepts it, the declaration will follow as a matter of course. It won't. They'll change it. They'll cut it to pieces. We have to risk that, Tom. I say Mr. Adams is right. Vote on the Lee resolution first. It's our only chance. And as for changing the draft, heavens, man, we aren't infallible. I don't claim we are, Mr. Adams. Gentlemen, gentlemen, let's address ourselves to the business at uh, hand. Mr. Franklin, the chairman's trying to catch your eye. I know. He's been estimating the pros and cons. I think Harrison's with us. Yes, it looks as if he wanted a sign from you, Mr. Franklin. Yes, well, are we all agreed? Shall we force a vote now, John? I, I think I can promise you the Massachusetts delegation. I've already spoken to Wellcott and Huntington in the Connecticut delegation. We can count on them. I'm certain of Virginia. What about your own state, Mr. Franklin? I believe Pennsylvania will do the right thing. Well, then I say let's call for a vote. Yes, yes, we very do. well, gentlemen. <clears throat> Roger, you have a powerful fist. Start pounding it on that desk, would you? All right. Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman. The chair recognizes Mr. Franklin of Pennsylvania. 
Mr. Chairman, I second the resolution just put before the convention by Mr. Lee of Virginia and move that at this time a vote be taken on its passage by the Congress. The chair rules. The chair rules in the affirmative on the motion of the member of the Pennsylvania delegation. A vote will be taken at this time on the resolution submitted to the convention by Mr. Lee of Virginia. We will call the roll of the colonies. Connecticut, four votes. Connecticut cast its four votes yeah. in favor of the resolution. Jonathan, yeah. Jonathan, have you seen the paper this morning? I have. The British have won another battle in New York. They'll be here in Philadelphia before you know oh, it. Oh, no, no, I don't mean that. Here, look, this little item on the back page. Read it. Uh, this day, the Continental Congress declared the United Colonies free and independent states. Uh, is that all there is to it? Don't you know what it means, Jonathan? Mm -hmm. We're free. We've cut ourselves loose from England. But shouldn't there be more? What else is needed, Jonathan? We're free. Free men and women, Jonathan. The Congress has said so. Well, I can't believe it. Maria, I can't believe it. I heard Mr. Jefferson's to read the declaration in the courtyard of the State House this afternoon, and that anyone can come who wants. Well, then why are you standing there? Get your bonnet, wife. Get your bonnet. <laughs> We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Mr. Adams, I should say young Jefferson reads almost as well as he writes. Yes, indeed. There's a lot to learn, but I believe he'll learn it. Mr. Franklin, listen to that crowd. They're for it. The Declaration says what they want it to say. Yes, Tom, I think it does. Do you feel the people are with us now, Mr. Adams? Indeed, I do. Yes. Well, the greatest question that was ever debated in America has been decided. And a greater, perhaps, will never be decided... 
and never was among free men. There's still a long fight ahead of us. And I'm well aware of the blood and toil and treasure it will cost us to maintain the declaration. And yet, through all the gloom, I can see the rays of ravishing light and glory. I think that it will be a memorable day. Perhaps the most memorable in the history of America. I believe it will be solemnized by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It deserves to be celebrated with every kind of pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, from one end of this continent to the other. And from this day forward, forevermore. Yes, but above all, it should be, it must be forever commemorated as our day of deliverance, commemorated by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. Here is your hostess, Miss Loretta Young. Thank you, Tony Lafrano. The family that prays together stays together. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. Hollywood Family Theater has brought you The Longest Hour, starring Robert Stack and Jean Lockhart. Loretta Young was your hostess. Others in our cast were Norman Field, Fred Shields, John Stevenson, Pat McGeehan, Billy Baucom, Miguel Bonney, and Dave Young. The script was written by John T. Kelly, from an original story by Robert Hardy Andrews, with music composed and conducted by Harry Zimmerman, and was directed and transcribed for Family Theater by Joseph F. Mansfield. This series of Family Theater broadcasts is made possible by the thousands of you who feel the need for this type of program, by the mutual network which has responded to this need, and by the hundreds of stars of stage, screen, and radio who give so unselfishly of their time and talent to appear on our Family Theater stage. To them and to you, our humble thanks. This is Tony Lafrano expressing the wish of Family Theater that the blessing of God may be upon you and your home. The Longest Hour an episode of Family Theater from just before Independence Day in 1953 and from our 4th of July weekend celebration here on the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. That family theater story was a fictionalized account of what happened in Philadelphia on July 4th, 1776. But what if radio news had existed back then? Well, no doubt, CBS would have been on the scene, reporting live. And on the 4th of July in 1948, the network created, or maybe recreated, how that would have sounded. It's a big broadcast holiday weekend tradition sharing this installment of the CBS series, You Are There. 
Mr. John Daly at the State House in Philadelphia. A powerful opponent of the Declaration of Independence has emerged here on this fourth evening of July 1776. An opponent strong enough to rally the latent opposition to separation from the mother country. Mr. John Dickinson, Pennsylvania's leading delegate to the Continental Congress, has just told reporters that he intends to speak on the floor before the final vote is taken. This in a supreme effort to block this declaration, which would commit our 13 colonies to revolutionary war with England. Mr. Dickinson agreed that he is staking his political future on the outcome of the vote. He anticipates that if he fails to block passage of the Declaration of Independence, he will be ejected from the Congress and be July 4th, 1776, the State House in Philadelphia. You are there. John Dickinson, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson. CBS takes you back to the evening when the colonial leaders fought their showdown battle on the issue of independence from England with the fate of a continent hanging in the balance. All things are as they were then, except for one thing. When CBS is there, you are there. You are there is based on authentic historical fact and quotation. And now, July 4th, 1776, the Philadelphia State House and John Daly. During the recess, which is now officially over, we hurried from the end of this microphone here on the floor of the Congress to bring you this news. Mr. Dickinson has not arrived yet. He should be along at any minute. But meanwhile, the news has preceded him and it's having an explosive effect on the delegates who are present. As a matter of fact, the weather isn't helping things either. It's very hot here in Philadelphia tonight. And in their heavy waistcoats, ruffles and wigs, the delegates in the hall are perspiring profusely. Even more irritating are the horse flies from a nearby stable which come in through the open windows. These flies are nasty, so much so that Mr. Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, the author of the Declaration, has said that it is not at all unlikely that this debate will be ended not by sharp logic of the delegates, but by the even sharper bite of the horse flies. Major George Fielding Elliott has been talking to the delegates and is now ready with his analysis of the possibilities inherent in Mr. Dickinson's announcement. So I switch you now to our CBS headquarters booth here in the Congress. Come in, Major Elliott. Mr. Dickinson's views carry great weight here. His announcement therefore comes as a shock to those delegates who want the Declaration of Independence passed. Mr. John Adams from the Massachusetts Bay Colony, leader of the Independence Party, had hoped the Declaration would go through unanimously, but that's no longer possible. Indeed, the Declaration may not even pass. Mr. Adams and Mr. Dickinson personify the present political conflict. Mr. Adams is the son of a Massachusetts lawyer. He was educated for the law in New England. He agrees with the men who dumped the East India Company's tea into Boston Harbor. Although Mr. Adams prides himself on being a plain man, the delegates regard him as arrogant and intolerant of all who differ with his views. Mr. Dickinson, on the other hand, was born to wealth. He received his education at London's Middle Temple. He has a mild, amiable, sincere manner. He opposes independence because of his conviction that all political injustices can be righted by legal methods without recourse to violence or revolution. Just a moment. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson have entered the hall. So, back to John Daly. Mr. Jefferson! Mr. Jefferson! Yes? Mr. Jefferson, you've heard the news that Mr. Dickinson will speak against independence. May we have your comment? 
I I have the greatest respect for Mr. Dickinson's courage and integrity. Mr. Adams and I wish we could say as much for his political judgment. This Congress, sir, is in no mood for any more of Mr. Dickinson's temporizing. In the course of this debate, the delegates have learned to know Mr. Dickinson for what he is. A spineless aristocrat at best, at worst, an agent of the enemy. Well, Mr. Adams, we're very glad to have your comment also. Are you accusing Mr. Dickinson of being in the pay of the British? I hardly think Mr. Adams is intended any... Mr. Jefferson, sir... Mr. Dickinson has consistently sabotaged the work of this body by fallacious appeals to reason and by parliamentary devices, but no more of that. The Declaration of Independence will be put to a vote as soon as President Hancock arrives and calls this meeting to order. And I am confident that the gentleman will be unable to sway the Congress from the course on which it is now well launched. Thank you, Mr. Adams and Mr. Jefferson. The delegates are taking their seats. And as you must have gathered from Mr. Adams' remarks, the long smoldering enmity between him and Mr. Dickinson has finally fled out into the open. The debate, when he and Dickinson clash on the floor, promises to be more violent than any this Congress has heard in the two years since it's been in existence. Mr. Dickinson has just entered the hall, and he has to pass our microphone. He's coming this way now. Mr. Dickinson, sir. Yes, sir. Mr. Dickinson, Mr. John Adams has just called you an agent of the enemy, Mr. Dickinson. Would you care to make... Mr. Adams considers anyone who differs with him to be an agent of the enemy. But I cannot allow myself to be silenced by insults. The question is, shall our colonies declare themselves independent of the mother country? And on this question, my opponents have been utterly dishonest. Will you explain that, Mr. Dickinson? Certainly will. Eleven times in the past two years, Congress pledged itself not to seek independence. In January of this year, only six months ago, the Congress passed a most solemn declaration to the effect that we Americans have no thought of setting up an independent nation. And now, tonight, Mr. Adams asks us to break our pledged word. Nay, he demands it. But... If the people favor independence, Mr. Dickinson, I... Mr. Adams has confused the people. He has engineered coup d'etats in the provincial legislatures in order to pack, to pack this Congress with delegates favoring independence. He has organized gangs of hoodlums to roam the streets of the cities and towns, attacking those who oppose revolution. But isn't it true, Mr. Dickinson, that at least 50% of the population favors independence? Is it right for one half of the population to impose its views on the other half by terror? Can these colonies hope to achieve victory in a revolutionary war when half of the people oppose it? I predict that if the Congress passes the Declaration of Independence, the result will be civil war, useless bloodshed and ruinous defeat. True. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mr. Dickinson. The delegate from Pennsylvania is walking to his seat now. Mr. John Hancock, the president of the Congress, has entered the chamber, but it will very probably be a few moments yet before he calls the Congress to order. Mr. Dickinson said that a considerable portion of the people are opposed to independence. Well, Ken Roberts is outside the State House, where a representative crowd of Philadelphians are awaiting the result of the vote. So let's find out what they think about independence. Go ahead, Ken Roberts. With me at our CBS microphone is Mrs. Agnes Hatcher, who lives on Water Street. Mrs. Hatcher, do you favor separation from England? I hate separation. My husband was killed fighting for separation. Oh, I'm sorry. It's John Adams that should be sorry, and Mr. Jefferson. 
Why don't they make peace and end this killing? But, Mrs. Hatcher, would you want peace at any price? Will you tell me why my husband should die at Boston fighting the Bay Colonist battles? If the men of New England have a quarrel with the British, let them do the fighting and dying themselves. But Mr. Adams and Mr. Jefferson say they want freedom for all the colonies. I don't care about freedom. My husband is dead. Thank you, Mrs. Hatcher. Now, here beside me is Mr. Richard Caswell, an importer in Philadelphia. I forgot to ask you, Mr. Caswell, what do you import? The finest of English woolens, sir. The very finest, Ooh. I see. And do you favor independence? This, this, what do you think, Mr. Caswell? A dispatch rider has just ridden up at the State House. His horse is lathered and covered with dust and sweat. It looks as if he's been written long and hard. Where are you from, soldier? New York. General Washington's headquarters. What's the news there? What's happening? What are you excited for? Wait a minute. Wait. What's going on? The rider has gone into the state house. Whatever the news is, our reporters inside will bring it to you as soon as it's released. I'm sorry about that interruption, Mr. Caswell. Quite all right. Quite all right. You were about to tell me whether you favored independence. It's an illusion, sir. Independent from what? How can we be independent? We're Englishmen. My family's English. They're all in England. Or my trade, my business is with England. Look at my books, you see. This talk about separation is ridiculous. Worse than ridiculous. It's, it's vicious. It, it, it's ruining me. Ever since this war started, no shipments. No shipments. Percentages. 76% less business than my firm did in 75 but, Mr. Caswell, isn't it argued that if the colonies were independent, American businessmen could then trade with the entire world? Who wants to trade with the entire world? What do we need the world for? Everything we can produce, we can sell in England. And everything that we need, we can buy from England. It's just common sense, that's all. But how do you suppose the colonies have grown prosperous and, and strong and important? Protected trade with England. Protected trade. Yes, but what about the heavy taxes that the mother country has imposed? What about taxation without representation? Uh, bad. Bad. Very bad. But independence? Worse. Much worse. Terrible. What about Pitt and Burke in Parliament? We are friends in England. They are trying to settle this thing intelligently, without violence, without bloodshed. But Mr. Adams and Jefferson, those, those wild men in there, hot-headed radicals, that's what they are. They want to get power, that's all, power. That's all they're interested in, power. Well, Mr. Caswell, independence is Independence, the worst second. Listen to him. We've already become independent of principle and gratitude to the mother country. What did he say? And if this, if this war is permitted to continue, we shall become independent of cash, clothing, laws, liberty, and... Yes, yes, life itself. What are you talking about? You're a liar, that's what you are, mister. You're a Tory. A Tory. It may not be popular, but it's the truth. Shut up, you Tory, or we'll pick your weapon. I'm not afraid of you. This will close your mouth. Ah, ah. Captain, this is struck by the Spanish and Hecklingham. The crowd here is manhandling Mr. Caswell. The men are flailing at him with their fists. They must be members of the Sons of Liberty. The women are tearing at Mr. Caswell's clothes, spitting at him. The crowd is going wild and it's frightening. Mr. Casual is knocked to the ground. I can't see him, but I can hear his cries. The men are bending over him, swinging their fists, pounding. This is John Daly inside the Continental Congress. We have interrupted Ken Roberts because President Hancock has just called the Congress to order. He's about to read the dispatch which has just arrived from General Gentlemen, Washington's headquarters in New York. President this is Hancock. The contained in General Washington's dispatch. The news is grim indeed. A great British fleet is at this moment in New York Harbor. British Marines have seized Staten Island in the harbor, and redcoats are landing there by the thousands. General Washington advises that a British attack on New York City 
must be expected momentarily. The enemy appears to have overwhelming superiority in numbers and equipment. General Washington concludes with a statement that it may be impossible to defend New York City with the slender forces at his command. Gentlemen, the Congress will recess for five minutes. Congress has again recessed. The sound of President Hancock's gavel has released a torrent of excitement and confusion bordering virtually on panic. Delegates have risen from their seats. They are moving about the floor, talking to each other in loud voices, often shouting in their arguments. Mr. John Adams and Mr. Thomas Jefferson have rushed up to the chair. Mr. Adams is pale, agitated. Only Mr. Dickinson, of all the delegates here in the chamber, has remained seated. Mr. Rutledge! Just a moment, sir. Here's Mr. Edward Rutledge, a delegate from South Carolina. Sir, what effect do you think the news of the British arrival will have on the independence vote? It cannot fail to have a profound effect. It will add force and logic to Mr. Dickinson's position. Thank you, Mr. Rutledge. Mr. Rutledge is one of Mr. Dickinson's supporters. Here is Mr. Elbridge Gerry, a delegate from the Massachusetts Bay Colony and an independence man. Mr. Gerry. What do you think of the announcement, sir? Uh, frankly, I, I don't know what to think. Mr. Dickinson may well argue now that the Declaration of Independence may not be worth the paper it's written on. Uh, but we must keep our head. We must stand first. Thank you, Mr. Gary. Major Elliott has more news from New York, so let's switch to him in our CBS headquarters booth. Come in, Major Elliott. We now know that the British fleet numbers 130 vessels. The troops on board are commanded by General Sir William Howe, one of England's ablest generals. The appearance of the fleet has thrown New York into disorderly confusion, and the legislature has withdrawn, for safety, to White Plains, 35 miles away. Our New York newsroom informs us that a short while ago, CBS correspondent Ned Calmer passed through the British lines on Staten Island under safe conduct to interview the British commander-in-chief. He made a tape recording of this interview that our New York newsroom will play for you now. This is the kitchen of a Staten Island farmhouse, which now serves as General Howe's headquarters. A regiment of redcoats is on parade outside, marching to the music of a British military band. I can see them through an open window from where I'm standing. In their tight-fitting scarlet coats and long gaiters, these trim soldiers in perfect step to the music look like the veteran fighting men that they are. General Howe, sir, will you tell us how many such troops you have at your disposal? 14,000 on this island, and an additional 13,000 under General Carlton on their way across Lake Champlain in Upper New York. You don't mind giving General Washington this information? <laughs> not at all, not at all. Frankly, I doubt very much that it will make any difference if Washington knows it. I take it then, General Howe, that you're completely confident of victory. Naturally. Those men you see out there, they are the conquerors of France and Spain. They're the finest troops in the world. They'll crush Washington's colonial militiamen at the very first encounter, utterly. But Washington, poor fellow, he's leading nothing but a rabble. They lack powder, guns. His officers are without experience. Washington himself is hardly what you might call, shall we say, a professional military man. General Washington, sir, made quite a good showing in the war against the French. Under English commanders, Mr. Carver. Under English commanders. Mr. Carver? Chalmer. General Howe, you know, of course, that the Continental Congress is about to vote on independence from England. Would you care to comment on that, sir? Yes, yes, I would like to say something to that. I would like to say it as a friend and not as a soldier. 
I repeat, as a friend, because I think I have amply demonstrated my friendship for British America in the past by word and deed. Yes, if I recall correctly, General Howe, you once stated publicly that you would never lead British troops against British America. Of course, of course, but the situation has changed. The colonies are now being led by a pack of extremists. This rebellion by the mob must be crushed, and I have the forces with which to crush it. The greatest fleet and the most powerful force of soldiers ever assembled on American soil. I, uh, I hope with all my heart that it will not be necessary to throw this array of military power into action. I pray that the Council of the Extremists will be rejected by the Continental Congress and that the advice of saner, more moderate men will prevail. Thank you, General Howe. This is George Fielding Elliott in Philadelphia. The interview you have just heard was a tape recording made by Ned Kelmer at British headquarters on Staten Island. The recess here in the Continental Congress continues. The delegates are confused, shaken. Mr. Adams, Mr. Jefferson, and Mr. Benjamin Franklin, the leaders of the Independent Party, are doing all they can to counteract the doubt and hesitation inspired by the news from New York. They're trying desperately to maintain their strength, to keep their pledged votes in line, and they are insisting that the final vote be taken tonight without regard for the situation in New York. On the other hand, a group of less militant delegates is urging postponement until we have more definite information from General Washington's headquarters. The commander-in-chief said in his dispatch that he fears that he may not be able to hold New York. The cautious delegates want to know for sure whether he will fight or surrender the city without a struggle. Our CBS correspondent, Bud Tyler, is now at General Washington's headquarters. He may have some last-minute information. Therefore, we take you now to General Washington's headquarters in New York, Bud Tyler reporting. I'm waiting here on the parade ground before General Washington's headquarters. The Commander-in-Chief has promised to answer my question as soon as he comes out to address his troops, presumably to make some formal statement about the news of the British arrival. The bugles are blowing assembly. The men of the regiment are running to join their formations. I can see the flag of the 1st Massachusetts, I believe it is, the Virginia Rifles, the 5th Connecticut, and many others. But in all this mass of thousands of men, I see very few men in uniform. Most of the troops are dressed in civilian homespun. And quite a few of them wear the fringed leather shirts which mark them as frontiersmen. General Washington has still not come out on the parade ground. Oh, here's a militiaman coming by. Soldier, soldier. Oh, hi, let me go. I got four. Oh, ju- just a few questions. You've got plenty of time. Oh, but I, What's your name, son? Oh, Tom Thomas. Look, let me go, will you, mister? The sergeant will give me all... That's all right. I'll fix it with General Washington for you. How old are you, Tom? Oh, Seventeen. Uh-huh. Ever seen any action against the British? No, no, not yet. Well, you'll probably see action soon right here in New York. Well, I ain't afraid, if that's what you mean. How long have you been in the Army, Tom? Two, two months. Look, please, mister, ask me all your questions at once. All right, Tom, sure. How long are you in for? I'm going back home next month. That's when my three months are up. Oh? And my pawn enlisted me. He wanted to make himself $10. I see. Well, he got his $10, and I'm going home next month. Uh-huh. Well, there ain't nothing wrong with that, you know. No. Some fellas enlisted for the money and then deserted without even serving their three months. Well, yes, but uh, what about independence, Tom? How do you feel about independence? Well, I, I don't know nothing about that, honest, mister. I... Oh, there's the general. I gotta go. General Washington is approaching the microphone. Wears his full-dress uniform. The sword flaps against the side of his leg as he walks. General Washington, are you going to fight for New York? 
It is a difficult question. Frankly, I haven't made up my mind. If you elect to fight General Washington, do you think you will be able to defend New York successfully? I will do my best, and God willing, we shall be successful. In any event, I would like to say to all the people, do not yield to panic. General, in view of the current situation, do you think the Declaration of Independence should be passed at this time? That must be decided by the Congress in Philadelphia. Thank you, General Washington. Commander-in-Chief is walking away across the field now. His shoulders slightly bent. His jaw thrust forward in the manner of a man who bears an enormous responsibility for which he is ill-prepared. This is Bud Collier in New York. I return you now to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. This is John Daly of the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. This is the long-awaited climax of the debate on the Declaration of Independence. The Congress has reconvened, and because Mr. Dickinson asked to speak against the Declaration, Mr. Adams has also requested the floor. By agreement, the vote will take place when the two speakers have finished. Also, by agreement, before the session began, Mr. Adams is speaking first. He is exerting his utmost efforts to keep the votes pledged to independence from voting to Mr. Dickinson. Will he succeed? Well, we'll only know when the vote is taken. And now let's listen to Mr. Adams. By proclaiming a declaration of independence, gentlemen, this Congress will be giving official recognition to a fact which already exists, namely that these colonies are actually, in fact, independent of England. Yet, some great brains counsel us to wait, to exercise caution. Do these cautious gentlemen plead for a postponement of a declaration of independence so that their Tory friends may have time to hatch plots and conspiracies against us? Gentlemen, who delay is to play into the hands of the enemy, defeating the cause for which so much blood has already been shed. There must be no further delay. The people are ready. The people wait for the Congress to lead them. The hour has struck. The Congress must proceed now to a vote, an affirmative vote, on the Declaration of Independence. Mr. Adams has left the rostrum. Mr. Dickinson is coming up to speak. Dickinson's face is pale, his fists are clenched. He's clearly marshalling all of his strength for a supreme effort of oratory. He's waiting now for the Congress to come to order. Mr. Dickinson. Mr. President, I accuse my opponents of cynicism. They do not, they cannot believe that these colonies will be able to endure as independent states. Their true goal is not independence. They exploit indignation against the mother country to further their own personal fortune. Mr. President, my opponents make their appeal to the emotions. I make my appeal to intelligence and logic. Mr. President, British troops are on Staten Island in overwhelming force. They are about to attack New York. 
General Washington's task would be difficult at best, but a declaration of independence now will serve only to divide the people of New York and make the defense of that city hopeless. Pass the declaration and you will set brother against brother, father against son. The colonies will become not only the scene of warfare with a mother country, but civil war as well. And in the bloody, senseless, fratricidal struggle, there is no possibility of success. Proclaim independence this evening, gentlemen, and you gain nothing. You merely invite the whirlwind of destruction. I urge you to vote against it. I beg, I plead, I beseech you, vote against, against independence. Mr. Dickinson's plea has been received without applause. The delegates are calling the question, and there seems to be no objection. Oh, but wait a minute. Several of the delegates have risen. However, they're not going to ask for the floor. These delegates are leaving the hall. Four, five... There go three more. Others are leaving also, and I can recognize some of them as men who have been openly undecided. Apparently, they're unwilling to vote, caught on the horns of a dilemma, swayed, no doubt, both by Mr. Adams and Mr. Dickinson. This is a great, a fearful moment of decision. Some of these men are apparently not capable of facing up to it. President Hancock. Embodying the Declaration of Independence. The vote will be by colonies. Each colony voting as a unit. A majority will decide. The blood will call the roll. Twelve votes will be cast. New York has decided to abstain. Thus, seven votes will carry the issue. New Hampshire, Mr. Josiah Bartlett. New Hampshire votes unanimously for independence. Massachusetts, Mr. John Adams. The Patriots of Massachusetts. Vote unanimously for independence. Rhode Island, Mr. William Ellery, independence. Connecticut, Mr. Roger Sherman, independence, unanimous. New Jersey, the Reverend Dr. Witherspoon. Mr. President, in my judgment, the country is not only right for independence, but is in danger of becoming rotten for want of it. New Jersey votes unanimously for independence. Pennsylvania, Mr. Benjamin Franklin. The majority of the delegation from Pennsylvania votes for separation from England, so help us God. Delaware, Mr. Caesar Rodney. Delaware votes unanimously for independence. The Declaration of Independence is passed. Delaware has cast the deciding vote. There is no reaction from the delegates, and the voting continues. It will very probably be unanimous by colonies. Many of the individual delegates are shaking their heads. However, no matter what may be said against the Declaration, this document is impressive. It reads well. It begins... When in the course of human events, change is necessary, and then continues, and I quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, 
and the pursuit of happiness. July 4th, 1776. Arriving there, John Dickinson loses his fight to block the Declaration of Independence, and the 13 colonies go forward to establish the United States of America. One of my predecessor, Ed Walker's favorites, the July 4th, 1948 edition of You Are There, titled Philadelphia, July 4th, 1776, a holiday institution here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Nominally, the 4th of July celebrates the adoption of the Declaration of Independence by the Continental Congress. But over the years, the holiday has proved a valuable vehicle for the expression of pride in characteristic American values. The Declaration talked about certain rights we all cherish. And after the Revolution, the Articles of Confederation and later the Constitution also dealt with our rights as citizens. But it wasn't until after the Constitution and the federal government were established in 1789 that the first Ten Amendments, the Bill of Rights, became the law of the land. The most famous is the First Amendment, protecting freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom to assemble peacefully and petition the government, and freedom of speech. So, on this Fourth of July, at a time when freedom of speech is being threatened around the world, and even in our own country, we're going to listen to a program that dramatizes the struggle for that precious right. It was narrated by John Daly, whom we just heard, and written by Carl Sandburg, Earl Robinson, and William White. There's a peculiar reference in a conversation between James Madison and Patrick Henry, two enslavers, to the Bill of Rights ending slavery, which, of course, it did not. From January 11, 1942, just a month after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, it's the program called simply Free Speech from the prestigious CBS series The Columbia Workshop. We invite you to listen to a program about free speech first produced on the Columbia Network a few weeks ago. Free speech. Two words that seem to have new meaning since December 7, 1941. Or have they? Perhaps the meaning of the words free speech is so deep and timeless that it changes not at all. That it remains valiantly the same today as yesterday, tomorrow as today. This time and these words are dedicated to the men and women throughout history who have been willing to pay any price, even death itself, rather than surrender freedom of speech. Their voices speaking out to us from all the days and all the times drown out the rantings of tyrants whose names no longer frighten even schoolboys. They are with us and they speak today, these liberated voices. We hear them and understand, for we too are free and mean to remain so. Let us begin in the Mother of Parliaments in the year of our Lord, 1941. Mr. Speaker. The Right Honorable Prime Minister, Mr. Winston Churchill. Mr. Speaker, members of the House of Commons. 
certain members of this parliament have been questioning of late whether their democratic prerogatives of free speech are not being imposed upon by this government in the present crisis. If these honorable gentlemen really believed what they pretend to believe, I do not imagine they would have the courage to speak out on this subject as they have spoken. It has been pointed out that in wartime, criticism is the lifeblood of a democracy. Well, in war, it is very hard to bring about successes, but very easy to make mistakes or to point them out after they have been made. And so I say this, not so much in answer to the honorable members' questions as for the guidance of those in countries abroad. No one speaking or voting against this government will be assaulted with rubber truncheons or sent to a concentration camp or otherwise molested. We shall keep our parliamentary institutions intact, come what may. And if we stand by so doing, we shall have afforded the final answer to mankind's age-old conflict between slavery and freedom. In the cold and quiet yesterday Yes, how many times has it happened? And in the folded and quiet yesterdays of how many lands? Did you read about Socrates in a book? Is it too far back for you, the 399th year before Christ? It needn't be. A man jailed by dictators on trumped-up charges, speaking calmly, freely to a friend on his last day. That voice never stopped speaking, speaks to you now. Why have you come at this hour, Crito? It must be quite early. Yes, it is. What is the exact time? The dawn is breaking. I wonder that the keeper of the prison would let you in on this morning of all mornings. He knows me, because I have come here often, Socrates. Moreover, I have done him a kindness. Oh, oh, certainly. I, You will pardon me for having forgotten. Socrates, I come to bring a message which is sad and painful. Not as I believe to yourself, but to all of us who are your friends. What? I suppose that the ship has come from Delos, upon the arrival of which I am to die. Very well, Crito. If such is the will of God, I am willing. Oh, my beloved Socrates, let me entreat you once more to take my advice and escape. For if you die, I will not only lose a friend that cannot be replaced, but there is another evil. People who do not know you and me will believe that I might have saved you if I had been willing to give money. Good men, and they are the only persons who are worth considering, will think of these things truly as they happen. Then, Socrates, will you not, I adjure you at this last time, call unto you here your judges. Say to them that you will cease your inquiries and criticisms. You know that they will grant you your freedom once again on this provision. No. I am afraid that if they were to come into this chamber, 
I would say to them what I have said to them before. I would say, Lords of Athens, you have nothing of which to accuse me. I have concealed nothing. I have dissembled nothing. I know that this plainness of speech makes you hate me. And what is your hatred but a proof that I am speaking the truth? I would say, O oh, men that have condemned me, I would fain prophesy, for I am about to die, and that is the time in which men are gifted with prophetic power. Socrates, I entreat you. Me you have killed because you wanted to escape criticism and not to give an account of your lives. But it will not be as you suppose. Far otherwise. For I say that there will be more accusers of you than there are now. Acquit me, or do not acquit me. But be sure that I shall not alter my way of life. No, not if I have to die for it many times. it happened? How many times has it happened? Yes, how many times? The thinker forbidden to think, but thinking all the same. Books burned in the public square at Athens, but always a copy unburned somehow. Left unburned to be discovered a century, seven centuries, twenty centuries later. But it's hard to stop people from thinking... The crackling roar of the burning drowns out your thoughts for a while. But there is the thought again when the quiet returns. Burn the books. Burn the printing press. Burn a woman's body, too, if there's no other way. When did you hear last the voice speaking to you? Yesterday and today. At what time did you hear it yesterday? Three times. Very often I hear it. More often than I tell you. What were you doing when you heard it? I was asleep, and the voice woke me. In what way? Did it touch your arm? How could a voice touch my arm? You claim to have seen these saints, Mademoiselle Jean. In what shape do you see them? I see their faces. Can you describe them? Do they wear robes or garments of some sort? Do you think our Lord has nothing to dress them in? But surely they must have something besides faces. I see only their faces. Have they hair on their heads? Why should their hair have been cut off? Gendarme, <clears throat> I hardly tell you that if you persist in this heretical contention, the voices of saints are speaking to you and to no one else in France. You will die by fire at the stake. Speak now, Gendarme, and be saved. My lords and bishops, I will speak what the voices bid me to speak, but no more. That I, Jean d'Arc, was bidden by the king of heaven to make my country free. That the voices spoke to me, and even now bid me speak. And that your threats shall never interdict them. For were I to see the fire, and I tied to the very stake, I would still say what I have said. And would not do otherwise. A woman burned for saying, 
I listen to my voices and obey them. But men learn slowly. There came an age of reason, or so they called it. And in a century or so, there were politer ways to go about the throttling. Torture went out of fashion. But there were still ways. Legal ways, perhaps. Other ways to keep a man from speaking out too freely. Exile. Exile will do very well. The threat of exile came to one of Britain's most illustrious men of science, Joseph Priestley, at a quiet dinner given in the home of another great free thinker, the pamphleteer Thomas Cooper. Ladies and gentlemen, I should like to propose a toast to England's greatest scientist, the discoverer of the extraordinary vapor called oxygen, Dr. Joseph Priestley. Hear, hear, Dr. Priestley. Speak. Speak. Uh, so much. Now that you have toasted my generation, you have toasted my generation, you have toasted my generations. On the 91, I salute the future. The future of liberty, equality and fraternity that will one day be realized all over the world. The future that was given to us on Bastille Day by the French Revolution. I don't know what I quite Dr. Priestley, surely you must be joking. Dear lady, I couldn't be more serious. Well, then I'm afraid that you and I have no alternative. We must leave. Good heavens, madam, we are not living in medieval times. Surely today a man may stand up in a room and express an opinion freely on any subject he chooses. I'm sorry. Are you coming, sir? Quite right, my dear. Sorry, please, lady. I think the old well, Excuse us too, Dr. Priestley. My dear. Well, Cooper, that leaves you, Mrs. Priestley, and me. Gentlemen, a toast. Liberty... Equality and fraternity. Liberty, equality, and fraternity. Church and king, down with priestly. Turn the traitor out. Listen to them. Listen to them. Mobs in the streets outside our own house. Oh, let them shout. They shout my name. They don't even know who I am. I could walk through the mob without being recognized. They've been shouting it for five days now, ever since that night at Tom Cooper's. Well, there'll be worse violence, though. They set fire to Tom Cooper's house, and they broke up his printing office because of the pamphlet he wrote and published defending you. What are the Coopers going to do? Well, they're going to America. It seems the government's friendly to journalists over there. Are you afraid, my dear? Yes, I am, Joseph. I'm terribly afraid. All your scientific work, this new element you've discovered, this this oxygen, it might be terribly important, and it might be lost if... If what? If... Open! In the name of the king! Open! Oh, Joseph, what, what are you going to do? I'm going to let them in. Oh, no. No, Joseph, no. Come in, sir. Thank you. Mr. Priestley, I've been sent by the government to warn you that you are in acute danger, and that you and Mrs. Priestley will be better off out of this country. Well, sir, this may surprise you, but I think you are right. I think perhaps I shall be better outside this country. Out of England? Yes, my dear. The priestess will be sailing to America on the very next ship. In America, they will be very interested in learning what has happened to me here for speaking my mind. Very well, sir. I shall report your decision to my superior officer. Good night, sir. Good night. Oh, Joseph. What's happened to our England? My dear, the fight for the freedom of the human spirit has been fought many times. 
Sometimes the forces of liberty appear to be losing, but they're never lost, really. England still has her lesson to learn from the French Revolution, but she'll learn it, and she'll still have it when Europe shall have gone into the darkness again for a little while. Promises are made of words, and promises are broken. Words can be treacheries, but as long as true words can be spoken, something will come of it. Men in the new world spoke of a greater freedom. We recall words spoken over a pint of ale in a tavern in Williamsburg, Virginia, between two gentlemen with little in common. The one, a fiery revolutionary, Patrick Henry. The other, a staid landowner, James Madison. Tell you, Mr. Madison, the Constitution as it stands is milk and water. You think so? I have a letter from Tom Jefferson, Mr. Henry. I marked a passage there especially for you. Read it. A bill of rights is what the people are entitled to against every government on earth, general or particular, and what no just government should refuse. Well? Mr. Henry... An unjust government could suppress freedom of speech and freedom of press and of commerce and all the rest of it. Bill of rights or no bill of rights. It's the guarantee that counts, Mr. Madison. Well, it seems to me that the Constitution is specific enough as regards liberty. There are too many definitions of the word liberty, Mr. Madison. What if a tyrannical government took it to mean liberty for them to put other people in jail without a trial? Mr. Madison, we need your vote. And we need your help. Jefferson and I are known as radicals. The Hamilton crowd are afraid of anything we support. But you, a conservative, one of the biggest landowners in the country, they'd listen to you. You think so? I know it. But what have we to fear from a government composed of men who fought a revolution for just these rights? Nothing. But there will be other governments. There will be men with different ideas of liberty. We cannot forever remain isolated from Europe as General Washington hopes. Do you really believe this Bill of Rights is the answer? You seem to have a good deal of faith in the words on that piece of paper. Words on a piece of paper are all that bound us to the tyranny of the old world. Words on a piece of paper declared this nation's independence. Not words alone. The idea must come before the action, Mr. Madison. Words alone cannot guarantee the liberties of this nation through the centuries. But they can tell men, come what may, that once they were free and can be free again. Mr. Henry, I think I'll join your forces. Thank you, Mr. Madison, thank you. This means much to me and to our country, too. Oh, Mr. Phipps. Uh, coming, sir. Coming. C- come uh, over here. Well, what is it? Uh, anything wrong, sir? On the contrary, Mr. Phipps. Mr. Madison and I are about to think a toast to you. To me? Yes, to you, Mr. Phipps, in whose excellent tavern upon a night in 1791, slavery and the opposition of the human spirit were abolished for all time. Oh, thank you, sir. Because of what we decided here tonight, the shape of things to come may be a different thing. Who can tell what may happen when men are free to speak their minds? And so it was done, and a nation was built upon it. In one nation, at least, men were free to speak their minds, and still are free. Unhappily, in many other nations, even as we speak to you, it is not so. Prisoner Niemela. Yes? Herr Niemela, you are going to leave this concentration camp. 
The Fuhrer has decided to make an exception in your case. He feels that the intense popularity which you enjoyed as a minister of the gospel is not to be overlooked. Enjoyed? Past tense? Has my congregation forgotten me already? Uh, I'm sure, Herr Pastor, they will welcome you back with open arms. Reich Bishop Mueller feels that you have learned your lesson. And if you has personally pardoned you, you are free to return to your church at any time. Free? Are you sure of that? Absolutely. Of course, you realize what is expected of you in return for the Fuhrer's kindness. Yes. Yes, I know exactly what is expected of me. Good, good. Well, then, good luck, Pastor Niemöller. Alita. Good day, Commissioner. Dearly beloved, I stand before you again. Hardly able to keep back the tears of joy that are welling up at the sight of you. My brothers in the communion of Jesus Christ. I am free because you wanted me to be free. And there are so many of you. I ask you not to forget that. If I go to a concentration camp for what I say here today and in the days to come, be they many or few, you will know that you too are no longer free. For in a land where one man is not free to speak his conscience in the sight of Almighty God, who is my Fuhrer, in that land no man is free. Dearly beloved, my text today is from the Epistle of St. Paul. These are the new men. Left to right. Schiller, Reinmann, Niemüller. Niemüller? Bring that man over here, Lieutenant. Niemüller, step forward. Get a move on. Let me look at your face. Eyes up, you fool. Salute your captain. Did you hear what I said? Let him alone, Lieutenant. It is you, Niemüller. Pastor Niemüller. I remember you. Yes. Pastor Schmidt, you preach at Rotenburg. I was Pastor Schmidt. I was formerly preached at Rotenburg. But we need soldiers, you know. And now I'm a captain with our forces. I see, yes. Pastor Niemüller. Well, well. What are you doing in the concentration camp, brother? Brother, what are you doing out of a concentration camp? <laughs> quiet yesterdays, put down in the book of the past, is a scrawl of scrawny thumbs, and the smudge of clutching fingers, and the breath of hanged men, of martyrs saying, welcome, as an axe fell, of men made to drink bitter death, 
for teaching truths to other men. Socrates! Of traitors cut in four pieces according to the ancient Anglo-Saxon formula for the crime of treason. Thomas More! Of persons covered with filth. Persons covered with filth in due exaction of a penalty. Martin Niemöller! Of ears clipped, noses slit, fingers chopped. John Huss! Of wanderers seared with a hot iron in the breast. Abelard. Of violence as a motive lying deep as the weather changes of the sea. Mary Dyer. Of gang wars, tongue wars, civil tumults. What, Tyler? Of agitators outlawed to live on thistles. Lovejoy. Of thongs for holding plain spoken men. John Brown. Of printed thought and speech being held at crime. Peter Zenger. And a woman burned for saying, I listen to my voices. And obey them. Joan of Arc. And the thing fell locked into stone and iron for saying, The earth moves. Galileo. And the pity of men learning by shocks. Semmelweis. By pain and practice. By plunges and struggles in a bitter pool. The son of man. In the of the people estimated as to price and fought with tribes signed and delivered or waylaid or shot or meshed by perjurers or hunted and sent into hiding taken and braided in garments and dung fire applied to their foot soles now their mouths pasted with rubble Head on slops hung my thumbs Till the mention of an uprising was casual So, so As though the next revolt reached out there In the bowels of that missing great The people flesh and bones throw the ashes to the four winds ashes to the four winds ashes to the four winds smile one of them yet my voice shall linger on and in the years yet to come the young shall ask what was the idea for which you gave me death and what was I He didn't last long after that. Five-man firing squad finished him. Four o'clock one morning. 
Didn't hear much about his family after that. Who are you talking about, Father? I hear his son turned up in another country, preaching the same things. What was he preaching, Father? They say he was a pretty straight, hard-working man, treated his wife well. I remember the time he was talking to a few of us down in front of the town hall. Why, that must have been just before they arrested him the second time. Why did they arrest him? What was he saying? Something about the rights of the people, as I remember, son. What's the rights of the people? Some of it's written down, and some of it isn't, son. But why'd they kill him, father? What was his idea? What was he saying? Why didn't they kill him? What was the idea? What was he saying? Why didn't they kill him? What was the idea? What was he saying? Why didn't they kill him? They shouldn't have killed him. And his voice shall linger on. and quiet yesterdays, men have died for the right of free speech. We are grateful to be living in a country in which we can speak and write and broadcast with freedom and without fear. A country whose president, in the very week which brought war to us, could assure us that all confirmed facts, except those which would prove valuable to the enemy, would be told to us, and could invite criticism from anyone who feels that the government is not disclosing enough of the truth. Yes, We who are speaking and we who are listening are free and mean to remain so. This hemisphere of the Americas is strong and courageous and unafraid because of it. And across the seas too, even now, there are men whose souls remain free. Men underground in Europe are saying what they think, even with the threat of death hanging over them for saying it. How big an audience do you suppose you have? After all, the penalties for listening to a freedom radio station could hardly be more severe. We must have a tremendous audience. We have a good wavelength, and our transmitter is strategically located. The people can't help hearing us, even if they are forbidden to hear us. Aren't you afraid that you'll be caught? Not anymore. I think that if we were located, somebody would let us know there was danger. We have many friends. I know. That's how I was able to locate you and offer you my services. But supposing they do find you... What could you do? I could die, of course. But there are other transmitters like this one. There will always be more and more of them. Sometimes, as you work here, it must seem futile. The air is so crowded with voices and the punishment for listening is so decisive. No, I never feel discouraged. I believe that any station broadcasting lies will lose its audience in the long run. But the stations that broadcast the truth... have just heard a program dedicated to the men and women throughout history who have been willing to die if necessary rather than surrender their freedom of speech. The composition in the folded and quiet yesterdays is from The People, Yes, by Earl Robinson, Carl Sandburg, and William C. White. The soloist was Lansing Hatfield. Lynn Murray conducted, and John Daly was the narrator. 
Earl McGill directed the production for the Columbia Network. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Free speech, an important reminder on this Independence Day weekend of how precious and hard-won our freedoms are. That program from the Columbia Workshop in 1942 brings us to the end of this edition of the Big Broadcast, and we're going to close, as we usually do at this time of year, with an anthem that sings of hope, faith, and rejoicing in our liberty. It was a radio hit a half-century ago on what was then called the Billboard Best-Selling Soul Singles Chart, written in 1905 by the brothers James Weldon Johnson and J. Rosamond Johnson, and recorded in 1968 for MGM Records, it's Kim Weston's rendition of Lift Every Voice and Sing. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineers Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd, this is Murray Horwitz, wishing you a safe and happy 4th of July. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. The faith that the dark has cast.